chill. You ever um, get the feeling like like you were uh, just kind of dropped here? What? Well, I don't know. It's just uh, all day I've, I've had the the oddest sensation. Just I, I don't know. Just kind of detachment or Bobo. All right, season six, Northern Exposure. Here we are, Charles. We made it to the final season of Northern Exposure. Oh, man. I cannot believe we have done five seasons of Northern Exposure. Now, granted, the first two were kind of like, even if you combine them, they would even equal one season. But still. Back in those early days with the first, I remember the first two seasons recording in like your apartment, my apartment, just all around. I think we've joked on this podcast before, like we didn't even have mic stands. We, We had our trade secrets of like, a paper towel roll holding. Microphone. Yeah, we would we would stack the paper towel roll where it was uh, standing upright. So then, like the hole in the center is where you would put the mic. Don't attempt this because it doesn't work. It doesn't actually. <laughs> I mean, it works, but it doesn't actually. It's not better than just holding. Well, like the mic, anytime anyone banged on the table, you would feel the reverberation right there. So right. yeah, yeah, definitely not good secret technique for recording right here. But we've come a long way, and you know we've got some nice mics. We've got. They place things to hold our mics. And uh, I think we've talked a lot of good uh, discussion about Northern Exposure. And today, with the season six uh, premiere of Northern Exposure, I think we got a really, uh, a really interesting episode to dive into. Yeah, I feel like this one. Uh, okay, so I think that this is one of those plug and play episodes, if you get what I'm saying right here. Like, I think you could have stuck this as the beginning of season four or five, Mm -hmm. and it still would have worked. I think it's got that intellectual exercise hiding behind it because you know that it's a reimagination of the characters right here. Yeah. We're stepping out of the box. Definitely. But we're we're definitely returning back to it. We're setting back to the status quo. So – you really anything can happen. Yeah, resetting, resetting, and starting a new season. I didn't think about that. That's a good. Uh, I have like a hot take that I want to push out at the start of this episode. But first, yeah. let me just let me just uh, quickly say my name is Lee and uh, Charles. We're co-hosts of this Northern Overexposure podcast. Uh, it's our mission statement to overanalyze the TV show Northern Exposure one episode at a time, and uh, also part of our mission statement is to expand the reach of the show Northern Exposure. Um, Typically, in the past, for every episode, we've introduced Northern Exposure to uh, one of our friends, someone who has never seen it before and gotten their take on the episode. Though I think with this season, we're we're flipping the script here because, uh, you know, I I mean, barring this episode, I really love this episode. I feel that uh, I've heard and I remember that season six sort of takes a downhill fall, so it may not be the best season to... Uh, show someone if you want to introduce them to Northern Exposure. And in fact, I feel that there's so much building. And I I think, like you're saying, this episode is a perfect sort of like fourth season, fifth season, sixth season starter, because there's so much that has built up underneath it to get us to an episode like this, that we could have something like this. Um, That I think fans, you know, that's the new, (laughs) that's our new frontier (laughs) is, uh, you know, at the end of each episode, we're going to invite on a fan of Northern Exposure to recount what they thought about this episode, uh, rewatching it, and just kind of get general feelers on if what they remember about season six. Hopefully with uh, with not too much spoilers, because Charles, 
this is your first time watching Northern Exposure. Like, uh, I mean, well, you've seen seasons one through five, but this this episode's new to you. Yeah, I am waiting in trepidation because I know that, like you said, everyone talks about the decline in not just like the quality, but also in the characters and the story mm-hmm. and how they say that they like, I, I believe the quote that I read was that they lost their kindness for one another. Mm. And I, I want to say it was Barry Corbin who oh, said that. Wow. I think we felt a little bit of that in season five. We kind of mentioned that in our retrospective, just yeah. the new executive producer, David Chase, who is uh, still EP on, on this season as well. Right. And it's hard to look at a piece of media like this in a vacuum whenever you've been told that like the EP supposedly hated television, possibly this show. <laughs> He, he was not in, in agreement with how it was being ran by Joshua Brand and John Fauci for the first four seasons. Right. So when you hear statements like that, it's really difficult to be like, I just want to concentrate on what it would have been like in 1995 watching Northern Exposure. It's hard to separate those feelings from me. So I'm trying to approach this as neutral as I can. Thankfully, for this episode, I didn't have to think about that at all. Yeah, that's right. Kind of, Kind of is a... It's a departure from what you might normally expect. But also, here, I'll throw down my hot take now. So this episode, I think, is, you know, in some obvious ways and maybe some not-so-obvious ways, very self-referential of just the idea of Northern Exposure, the show. And what I think is crazy about my read for this episode or what it was saying to me when I was watching it, knowing that this is the last season— now, I don't know that the showrunners, that the writers knew that this would be the last season. I think at some point they, you know, figured out, okay, this we we can't we're not we're not getting called back for season 7. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of moments in this episode that feel like the writers are giving like a swan song performance or like they're talking about, you know, this is we've reached season 6 and this is our last one. And I don't know if they even could have known this would have been the last one or if maybe they did know. But I don't know. Did you kind of get that vibe or that feeling from this episode or am I reading in yeah. too much maybe? A little bit. <laughs> what I got from this episode is like the writers are comfortable enough with the characters to a degree, like to, to such a deft handling that they can reimagine them in mm-hmm. a different format, which is always really fun in my opinion. It's almost like a fan fiction. Yeah. Like yeah. You, you could just write your own fan fiction of like Star Wars or whatever and just have fun with the entire thing because you got these established character tropes and right. now you're just bending them and toying them and you're just taking them from one environment, plugging them into another one and just letting them loose right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and of course these are talented writers so they're able to adapt themes and subtext into the entire thing right there yeah but going back to you saying that you're not too sure if the writers or producers knew that the show was coming to a close i heard a story once uh it was about the dana carvey show Mm -hmm. and stephen colbert was talking about his time writing there and one day he showed up to work at the studio lot where they went and wrote the show And he went to the drawer where they kept the snacks and candies and stuff for the writers, and he opened it up, and it was empty. And he looked over at Dino Stamatopoulos, who this was not his first rodeo writing for a television show, and Dino took one look at the shelf, 
And he was like, oh, this is bad. We've been canceled. Because wow. they've stopped they've stopped stocking our uh, little treats right here. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's such a good way to know if you've been canceled. I've heard, I mean, I definitely want to read in more as we're talking about season six about just the whole history of this show. And I know there's some resources out there like uh, our season premiere for season five. We had Michael Samuel, the author, on uh, to talk. And he had just written a book at that time about Northern Exposure. And so I want to dive more into that. But yeah, I mean, like, I definitely remember reading interviews, seeing interviews with Brandon Falsey talking about how it always felt like they were breaking the rules, you know, to the higher ups. Mm -hmm. And there were certain points when I think, I can't remember if it was Brand or Falsey, where they like had to, in, in their own words, they said, kiss the ring, like, you know, abdicate to the demands of the higher ups. And at that point, I think they, after doing that, they were going to quit the show. But then, uh, I don't know, I think it was maybe around the time of a, um, a very critical episode, maybe like War and Peace, or they did something really crazy. And they're like, wow, that was cool. Like we, you know, we can still do fun things with the show. Unfortunately, we do know that Brandon Falsey do leave like, it might have even been like somewhere in the third season, um, though I think they were kind of like loosely involved with parts of season four. And then by the time we get to season five, obviously David Chase has come in here. So this is all to a long-winded way of saying, you know, maybe all along they kind of felt like things were, you know, as you're describing, like the snacks weren't in the cupboard, you know, like <laughs> felt like any moment it was falling apart and then maybe something did happen. Uh, we have these writers on today's episode, Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider, who I almost consider like, you know, co-producers of the show or something. They definitely feel like a strong writer presence. Right. They may even have EP credits. I am I could just be missing Yeah, at that. this stage. I can I can imagine them having EP credits at this stage. Mm -hmm. They're such a core staff to yeah. Northern Exposure at this point. Like it, when I saw their names pop up in the little credits thing, I was like, oh, okay, this is going to be some standard Northern Exposure affair <laughs> right here. Yeah. What I wanted to say really quickly, yeah. though, on um, what you were saying right there was that it's really funny that you bring that up because uh, the last time we were together for the Northern Exposure podcast, the main feed, mm -hmm. we had Michael Lang on, who was the episode director for numerous episodes mm -hmm. throughout season four and five. And we were talking with Mr. Lang and how different the environment was in 2022 compared to 1994. So you got mm -hmm. like this almost 30 year gap between there. And he mentioned that people were more involved between the cogs of the show now. Now, yeah. There's there's a lot more decision makers, I guess. Right. So like the writers would be on the set. They would be pitching in. There'd be numerous people tinkering with the thing. Mm -hmm. Whereas back then, uh, for my recollection on Northern Exposure, the, the writers were in California, were they not? I think you're right. Yeah, for sure. And and I think we've heard stories from the cast too saying like even the, uh, you know, I even feel like Brandon Falsey probably weren't up there unless it was like an episode that they were directing or like one of those big like season premieres or season, you know, I feel like they were also not there all the time. Right. So you have this idea that like it's so divided between each department that it kind of creates its own chaotic magic within there. Mm -hmm. uh, I know that like uh, for the television show, the West wing, that was a common thing where they were filming in an entirely different place than where Sorkin was. And they always had to call Sorkin to be like, Hey, how did you want this line to be read in this way? Cause it looks like there's like a strange comma or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then you have to tell them over the phone from like hundreds of miles away. And I think that's something like, 
we're we're definitely not getting now like what Mr. Lang was saying that like everything is a lot more streamlined for better or for worse mm-hmm. admittedly there's we good things that. to it and on this one this particular episode season six episode one I can feel that like I want to say they let loose yeah I feel like the right are you talking about the writers particularly or just mm-hmm. yeah yeah the writers are they're they're being very very meta I think I don't know we can talk about specific things but they're definitely getting wacky for sure. That's like a trademark Northern exposure thing. I remember this episode as being like, oh yeah, that's a, that was a fun one. Like this is the weird, like, you know, out of body experience, like alternate reality experience. But watching it again this time, I should mention, I've only seen season six once before. So all the seasons before, I feel like I've watched at least twice. And then like first two, three seasons, uh, plenty times. And so watching it again, I guess now for the second time with all of this podcast leading up to this, I was just really impressed with how self-reflexive this episode was. And we've already said this before, but I feel like, you know, this is a great place to have an episode like this, like towards the end of the life cycle where they can really be um, scrutinizing maybe their own machine of Northern Exposure and kind of looking into that by telling this alternate tale. Uh, Maybe we should dive in. I guess I should start reading off some credits, start talking about plot. Yeah, yeah. All right. So the title of the episode is Dinner at 7.30. We kind of want to talk about that for a second. Does that reference anything? I mean, obviously there is like a dinner party. You, you, your mind instinctively goes to my dinner with Andre. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, like, something like that. <laughs> it instinctively always gonna, is going to go to that, and I think that there's some. I, I think there is some uh, quality to it that warrants that, mm-hmm. because this is a very self-contained, almost like a play. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would strongly wager that this was written like a play, um, mm-hmm. where there's a clearly defined Act One, Act Two, Act Three. It's carried forward entirely in its dialogue. Mm-hmm. And, and like the plots are so interwoven between the characters that it's kind of difficult to remove, uh, like surgically remove plot A, plot B, right. plot C, because they're all interconnected, just like how a play would be. Yeah, I was thinking about that because normally when we do our episodes, we'll focus on one storyline. Uh, you know, they're all intercut when you're watching the episode, but we'll focus on one storyline at a time. And I guess you could do that, but the way this unfolds, because it's all in the same like dinner party, there is so much intercutting that. I think it might be beneficial to maybe go from start to finish or we'll see how, you know, we can diverge if we need to on to focus on one plot line at a time. But, uh, but you're right. It does feel much like a play, uh, in the way that it's kind of all happening at once in a way in one contained spot. Uh, the director, Michael Fresco. Um, so I'll list off all of his credits. I think he he continues in season six to direct more episodes, but up to now he's directed Dateline Sicily, Thanksgiving, Old Tree, which was the season four finale, Mystery of the Old Curio Shop, Rosebud, Mr. Sandman, Hello, I Love You, and uh, I Feel the Earth Move. So those are some uh, pretty, pretty big episodes. The writers, uh, obviously we mentioned Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider. Just some of their greatest hits on Northern Exposure um, in season two, All is Vanity, Slow Dance, uh, Soulmates, the Christmas episode, Wake Up Call, Sicily, the um, season three finale, Northern Lights, big fan favorite, uh, Old Tree, which Michael Fresco directed, uh, and First Snow, that's another big fan favorite. 
Uh, and there, I mean, plenty other writing credits throughout this series. And finally, the air date, September 19th, 1994. And um, yeah, this episode starts off with a banger of a song. I don't know, do you recognize uh, this Talking Heads track? I do not. The only Talking Heads song that I know, the one that like everyone knows, it's like dun da da dun da da dun da da dun is you know it what I'm Psycho Killer, about? maybe, or is it something else? No, 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 no. It's like the... I, I, I mean, obviously, we can't play it because we would get DMCA'd <laughs> so fast. <laughs> I was going to say this is... I thought this might be one of their biggest hits. Um, but, uh, oh, um, it's the, the one you're thinking of, which, funny, funny enough, what's it called? Uh, <laughs> it's also, I think it's the theme song to Numbers, or at least in season one, it was like the theme music. Not the lyrics, but they use like the... The I think they used the uh, instrumental track to that. What is the freaking name of that song? <laughs> uh, same as it ever was, right? Yes. But, but what yeah. is the name of the song? Yeah. Though it's got a different name. It, yeah, I don't think it's that one. Is it? Isn't it? No. That, is it burning down the house? Uh, oh, burning down the house. Maybe is a very um, popular one. So once in a lifetime is the name. Ah. Of, is that the song? That uh, you probably the song you recognize. That's probably their biggest hit. Ah, uh, let me see. Yes, yes. Okay, so you recognize that song. Well, Talking Heads starting off this episode. And also, we should say this is gonna come back at the end. This song, and I think it's so. It's kind of magical and powerful the way this music amplifies this ending, which I think is a pretty strong, if understated, uh, ending. But I think the music really sells it as well. Um, Unfortunately, if you're watching the DVD release of this episode, you will not hear this song. I guess it was much too expensive to license. Uh, there's instead a sort of like um, reggae, funky song that plays here. Uh, definitely, definitely not as strong as an opener. Yeah, and that takes us to the first scene, which is going to be in Ed's room, where he's trying to repair... Uh, it's a typewriter, right? It's uh, Joel's VCR, which if you remember in season five, oh. I think he had already he had he had already broken it in season five, so it's broken again. Okay, I thought it was a typewriter. It's like a oh, he he says the tape is stuck, so maybe you hmm. were thinking like the tape ribbon or something like the ink yeah. ribbon. But there he says something about you got to clean your tape heads, which is inside oh. the VCR, like the read and record heads or playback. Heads. Okay, well that's that's a shame because I had like. A whole metaphor for the typewriter. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> so we got Ed trying to fix this tape recorder right here. And Joel's saying like, oh, do you have anything to drink in this place? And he pulls out this orange juice that looks inconspicuous enough. And as he drinks the orange juice, he realizes that it's mixed. It's cut with alcohol. <laughs> or it's cut with some weird stuff, right? Uh, yes, there we go. I mean, I, you can't rule out alcohol. There yeah, there's probably like, alcohol in there for sure. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Cause, so he's drinking from this orange juice and Ed's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Because Ed was distracted. He's very focused on the VCR. And he says, whoa, you didn't drink any of that, did you? You know, he says there there's like special like healer ingredients. He got the recipe from Leonard. It's supposed to be some sort of treatment for... People who need like an out of body, like if their body is in pain, um, this is to help you like sort of like get out of body in some way. And um, Joel almost immediately gets transported. Like I think it's such an interesting transition. He's like, oh man, like maybe I need to hit the bathroom or something. And he opens a door in a 
flash of bright light like hits him and he is pulled through the door out uh, into this cacophonous New York City street with like really loud beats and like music playing on a car stereo, cars like flying by. And um, yeah, Joel is like now transported to New York City somehow. And he walks up to um, Maurice, who is a doorman out front of this like fancy apartment building. Yeah. How do they shoot this? Because I don't think CGI was really prominent in 1995. Um, was that actually just a set? Like Ed's set was actually just straight up in there. And then when he opened the door, he literally walked into the city set. No, I don't think so because, uh, cause it did seem to be an actual location. I don't know. I don't think it's actually New York city. Um, maybe it was like, see, I would guess like Seattle or some big city near them where they were shooting. Um, but it definitely gave the sense of like a New York city street, I guess. But, um, the way they would do that shot. I don't think they could have like built the door or the set next to the street. So pretty sure there's just like a hidden edit whenever they do that really fast whip pan, like Joel mm. opens the door. Also, they could probably use a lot of that flash of light to make a cut on like a bright light, you know, so they could hide a hide a transition or a cut in there somewhere. Okay, got it. That's what I thought too. I was like, I'm pretty sure there's a cut between there, but I wanted to get your opinion to make sure. And I was like, is it even a possibility to build a set in the middle of the road <laughs> and have a transition like that? Because that would be it's possible, impractical, but, it but also seems cool. like Yeah, it seems dangerous or like, you know, they would have to, yeah, it doesn't seem like the easiest thing. Uh, but it is a great uh, transition effect, I think. Yeah, definitely. Like instantly I was like, whoa, this is a great, like if you're watching this episode for the first time, you're probably like, whoa, this is awesome. I think that even the sound effect is yeah. really cool. I think there's something going on with the audio where like it warps inward and then outward when he steps out and you're yeah. like, whoa. It's awesome. Um, definitely caught me by surprise. One of the weirdest shots that, at least to me, on my eyes, was when Joel stepped into the building after he's introduced to Maurice and it looks like a three-dimensional layout. Like it looks unreal. Oh, the background. Check that and out. And I don't know if it's the focus that's happening on the camera as it spins like slightly around Joel as he gets into the elevator with Eugene. But yeah, take a look at that uh, scene. Tell me what you think. Michelle. Yeah, I don't know. It's a, just a very cool sort of steady cam shot. It starts, uh, Joel enters sort of like we see Joel entering the door. And then we cut to a shot that seems to be his perspective as it floats around this empty, quiet lobby. Again, the sound now is extremely quiet once he enters the building. And the camera's sort of floating around as if it's like his point of view. And then he enters the frame, like enters his own point of view, and it becomes mm -hmm. this uh, steady cam shot. And I think maybe that 3D sense you're getting is like because the camera's kind of moving around like kind of wrapping around him as he's walking and we see all the background change as the camera kind of circles around Joel and yeah as you say he he hooks up with uh, Eugene who is the elevator operator in this building in this uh, alternate reality and um takes him up to his uh, like penthouse apartment up there yeah where it turns out that he is married to Shelly so we got a little rewriting of history going on here yeah. and there's a uh, a little bit of a seamless transition in the dialogue where they initially talk where it's obviously one-sided. Shelly is adapted to the environment. She's molded. She understands it. And she's talking to Joel about saying, like, you got to accept partner or you quit the job. Mr. Brown the ferret has gotten out of its cage. <laughs> the children need to be going to the park. 
And Joel, of course, since he's still stepping into the place, is saying, like, hang on, like, he doesn't outright say it, but he says, like, you ever get the feeling that you, you just stepped into a new place? Like, what's going on here? But then suddenly the seamless transition happens is when they start talking about God. Mm-hmm. And Joel is saying, like, hey, just, like, leave it alone for, like, a little bit. You don't have to go, like, that heavy. I mean, remember that time when you were talking about X? And, like, it, the moment he says, remember that time when you said about X, he's now part of the dream sequence. Because he's now able to remember things from the past yeah. that existed only in this universe. Yeah. I think, so you're talking about a scene later when they're in the, their bedroom, just a couple uh, seconds, or, like, a couple scenes after this. But it's Shelly and... Uh, Joel searching for Mr. Brown, that ferret that got away. Mm-hmm. And he's, uh, yeah, at, at that point, I think he's kind of like fully entered into this alternate reality. I, I, that's interesting because like when he first gets there, he definitely feels out of place. And I think uh, Shelly, who is like supposedly like it's his wife in this alternate reality, she's like, oh, you got that Pepto-Bismol for me. And he's like, he did. Like, he pulls it out of his pocket. You know, we didn't see Joel mm-hmm. get this Pepto-Bismol. But in this storyline, he's delivering Pepto-Bismol for her, whatever, upset tummy. And, um, yeah, interesting, their conversation. Um, we can Let's kind of jump towards this scene because this is the soundbite that we played at the beginning uh, when Joel says, you know, don't you feel like you're somehow just, like, dropped off here and you feel, like, out of place or something's not necessarily right? Um, in their bedroom is like a giant taxidermy moose head mounted on the wall. So even though things are like an alternate reality, there's still like effects of Northern exposure sort of like seeping in around the cracks, around the edges, like still getting clinging in. And Joel maybe feels moments like, um, when he looks at Maggie or something. So Maggie is their babysitter, you know, when he sees her, it maybe feels like that, that, um, veil of, like alternate reality is starting to pierce and like he can see back into, I don't know. I kind of, I'm reading a little too far into this, but I had those moments where it like felt like the characters at, I guess we'll talk about it when we get to certain moments, but felt like the characters were like struggling to reclaim their like original roles, you know? Right. Right. Ah, it's almost like the universe is calling to them and like you're, you're magnetically attracted back to your quote-unquote original selves right there. So the universe realigns itself to bring them there at the end of the episode. But before we get there, Mm -hmm. I think that there is one piece of dialogue that I thought was really interesting when they were talking uh, with Maggie's character. And when she leaves the room, Shelly makes the observation that maybe they should pick up a male au pair Mm -hmm. because they're missing a nurturing male figure in their children's lives. They have two children, one girl and one boy. And I think that's something to be said on how absent they are in their children's life. Mm-hmm. And that's just a symptom of this disconnect that all of the characters are feeling um, throughout the entire episode right there. They live in this really rich Manhattan penthouse. But throughout the episode, there's a couple of scenes where it's juxtaposed with scenes that almost feel like they're in the suburb where you get the Mm. feeling that things are more warm and inviting. Mm. But yeah, this was the first kernel that I picked up on Mm -hmm. where I was getting that disconnect. Yeah. So strange that uh, Shelly is Joel's wife and Maggie is the babysitter. I wanted to point out um, Maggie's got a Texas A&M University sort of sweater on. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember looking this up at the time when I first saw it, that, uh, you know, the actress Janine Turner... Um, is an alum of Texas A&M. Just confirm that real fast. 
All right. I can't confirm it right now. I couldn't find anything immediately, but I do know that she's from Texas. So that, yes. you know, it makes sense that she would be wearing. Uh, and she's got, um, she's got like an accent in this episode. What do you think about her Southern accent? Uh, it sounds all right. Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's hard to tell if it's like put on or if that's just like, you know, when Janine Turner goes back home, does she like have more of a Texas accent? Um, yeah, it does. It seems a little striking because it's, you know, coming from what we would expect from Maggie is not that accent, but uh, it doesn't seem like too forced or anything to me, at least. Yeah, I mean, well, her scenes are kind of limited, so right. you don't get to hear it a whole lot. She really doesn't have a, a whole lot in this episode, but she has some key moments uh, that I think are nice. Um, uh, I wanted to also point out, uh, we get a little scene with Chris in like this back alley as a photographer. He's taking photos of these models sort of sitting like in the middle of this alley. I think there's like sort of a table set up and there's chairs around it. These models are wearing paper bags, brown paper bags over their heads. Um, and this taxi rolls up into the alley. Bernard hops out. And uh, I should mention Chris is wearing like those like uh, Ray-Ban Wayfarer glasses. Like mm -hmm. Super like, uh, what would you call that? Like beatnik or hipster glasses and bernard is wearing this like backwards kangle hat and um i guess what we were to take from this scene is that chris works for his brother bernard who is a fashion designer and chris is sort of the photographer um you know part of that team uh, however in this reality chris has a lot of trouble explaining himself uh to bernard in this scene and then later in in future scenes uh he just can't seem to use any words like talking to anybody <laughs> right he has difficulty setting up the moment as he usually does when he's at the helm of k-bear and i think that goes along with the secondary theme the first being disconnectedness and i guess disconnectedness also funnels into this one which is the difficulty to communicate mm -hmm. uh explicitly with the eyes i find there's a lot of small little remarks that talk about blindness or inability to see or even the visual pieces like the brown paper bags over their heads or the or the blindfolds that Shelly and Holly talk about later. But in this particular scene, Chris is talking about this uh, this conformity that they have. And that's why he makes them wear brown paper bags. <laughs> and of course, Bernard is saying like, OK, we're not here for that. We're here to sell my clothing right, right. here. <laughs> One of the little things that I wanted to know, and yeah. this is just me personally speaking, is that uh, I've never been to New York City, but my idea of New York City is formed and molded by the media that I consume. Right. And a lot of the media that I consume that talk about New York City in this way are from like the 90s or the 2000s. So I feel like I'm going to be really disoriented when I... Do when I visit, visit New York for the first time, be like, hang on, they don't do this kind of quirky things like I saw on the television. Yeah, that's funny. Because yeah. this feels like such a New York thing, does it not? What, this Like scene? doing like back alley photo yeah. shoots and stuff yeah, like this? Yeah, it does. And I think that's really cool. Again, I, I was saying I don't think they actually shot this in New York, but it had the right vibes, you know? So the next thing we see after this is uh, Maggie is taking the kids downstairs and she bumps into Maurice, who we forgot to mention, he goes by Maury in this episode. Like when Joel first sees him, he's like, oh, hey, Maurice. He's like, you know, no one calls me that except my mom, you know, Maury, mm. um, something like that. 
Uh, so Maury, we can see, has like some big ideas, bigger than his um, current doorman duties. You know, I think he's like selling somebody uh, an umbrella for $20. Like uh, he's not afraid of losing his job because he has a big scheme in mind. Uh, he kind of talks about being an entrepreneur, yada, yada. And, um, you know, Maury talks with Maggie about uh, Mr. Chigliak who I think Maggie calls him uh, Mr. Moneybags. It is, uh, Mr. Chigliak is, I guess this businessman, okay, it's Ed, you know, Edward Chigliak, Mr. Edward Chigliak is Ed. Um, but in this alternate reality, he's like a businessman and Shelly is, I believe, his lawyer. He calls her counselor later and that's how, that's how this Mr. Moneybags is invited to this party and sure enough, he does roll up and he's kind of, I don't know. He's got sunglasses on. He's kind of dressed in a suit, you know, like a tan suit. He has a very different um, demeanor than Ed Chigliad. I guess he's still sort of like monotonous in a way, but he's very um, sort of like cold or rigid or I don't know how you would describe. Yeah, I think it's in a way it's actually kind of neat because it's yeah taking the same style of acting that Darren Burroughs does. But it's just being applied in a different character. Yeah. Um, and I guess we can skip forward just like yeah. a little. We could talk more about it. Yeah. But I'll skip like way toward the end and talk about there's a scene right at the end where Maurice pulls a gun on the entire party. <laughs> and he's about to shoot Ed. And Ed's holding the Mr. Brown in his hand. And Ed's eyes does like a quick three-point check. Like it looks at Maurice at the center. Uh-huh. Then it looks a little bit more down and then it looks toward the gun. Yeah. And you only read it through his eyes. Yeah. And then it looks back up. And that's like a really Ed type of acting Yeah, right there. Because it's very – you could just read what's on its face. And in this case, is with his eyes. That's what you call a good film actor. And that's like the beauty of film is because we get into those close-ups and like – as you're saying, while this episode kind of does feel like a stage play, you know, it might be hard to communicate those subtle eye movements on the stage. You might have to do something a little bigger to communicate mm-hmm. that you're looking from Maurice to the gun. You know, you might have to do like a bit of a neck turn or something, you know. But those eye, those little small eye movements, and yeah, Darren Burroughs, I'm not gonna say he's like an Academy Award winning actor or something, but he's definitely delivered some really powerful performances in this series. And uh, I think, you know, if you just, if you serve him the right content, you know, the right material, he can knock it out of the park. All right. We're talking about this earlier, but after that sort of Mr. Moneybag scene is that scene where they talk about, um, you know, Joel is talking with Shelly, like, you're so concerned with God. Shelly's like, you're so concerned with getting this uh, partnership and you feel inadequate in this marriage. We find out that... um, this partnership is with a Dr. Miller, who is played by Ruthann, um, or, you know, is Ruthann from this alternate dimension, I guess, alternate reality. <laughs> yeah, she's like this um, very busy, very important doctor who, like, you know, she, we, when we first see her, she's walking to a taxi, and I'm assuming her, like, secretary or something is um, taking down, like, all right, you got to do this meeting, or you have to do, like, this speech and uh, they want you to come on this day. And Ruthann's like, uh, all right, well, as long as they can get me back on the plane at four. And, you know, she's got to make it to this 
party tonight uh, at Joel's place. She's so busy that she forgets to take off her white coat, like the doctor's jacket, um, before she enters the taxi. So the uh, her like secretary has to be like, "Oh, your jacket!" Like they take it off, and yeah, that's kind of just a very brief introduction. But I think you know we sell that idea of this character pretty quickly. Right, right, and it's really funny that. I talked about it briefly earlier, but Joel accepts his role in this universe right. whenever they get into an argumentative mood, and especially one about God, which, like, I feel like maybe that is, like, a sore spot for him to some degree because of his Jewish heritage. Mm -hmm. So I feel like maybe that was an intentional thing, but it's kind yeah. of hard to tell. Um, but if you look at it at a broader scheme of things – you can tell that's another way of depicting people that are being barricaded or being isolated from what they want. So Shelly, in this case, wants to communicate through faith mm -hmm. and doesn't want to be held back from that. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot that this could be about. You know, there's the the talk of God and like the concern about God in this episode. What my ultimate read on this was is um, this was the part of Shelly from you know, our normal reality of Northern Exposure. We know that Shelly um, has like a strong hold on her faith, even though she is maybe like not the most devout. Like that means her faith means a lot to her um, in the sense where she there's like an episode where she has to get her uh, newborn baby baptized. Like that is very important to her. Uh, earlier in season two, she has to give a confession, you know, because she's done something wrong and she's, that seems very important to her. On the Christmas episode, Soulmates, uh, she wants to hear Ave Maria. She wants to feel like a real Christmas mass. Um, something about religion, even though she can't really put her finger on it, uh, it, it's very important to her. And in this alternate reality, I think that's maybe leeching in here uh, kind of coming in and, and Shelly in this Manhattan apartment uh, still is very concerned with God and doesn't fully understand why. And that's why I think later she's talking with Dr. Miller about that and they get in a little discussion. But I almost feel weird to say like that's, that is the read for what the meaning of God is in this episode. I feel like it opens, there's a lot that it could be, you know? Yeah. It's like that metaphor of the, the North Pole and the South Pole, like a magnet well, the characters are trying to come back to their original yeah. selves right there. And like you fight it, fight it if you can, but it's inevitably, it's inevitably going to pull you right there. So for Shelly, the magnet would be her faith in God, like you mentioned. Yeah. But yeah, this is where we get into the swing of the party right here. We get Hollings introduction. He yeah. is this uh, entertainer of sorts. Right. He sings all of these old hits from the 1920s and 1930s musicals like Cole Porter's You're the Top from Anything Goes. I think he's singing Ira Gershwin songs as well. And we see that Shelly is also paying attention to him. Mm -hmm. She's really magnetized. Makes sense. Him. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. We get to see uh, hauling uh, John Collum pull out that Tony award and uh, – <laughs> give us that beautiful singing voice and the party's really buzzing. Uh, we even get a, like a shot of Mr. Brown, the ferret, like eating mm -hmm. a little, yeah. <laughs> it's a great shot. Cause it's like underneath the couch, like on floor level. Cause we see someone's uh, shoes like sitting right there. And Mr. Brown kind of sneaks out from under the couch and is like eating hors d'oeuvres off a little plate. <laughs> so cute. Chris is trying to talk with uh, Walt 
about um, art, I guess. He says Cartier-Bresson, which I had to look up. He is a master of candid photography, according to Wikipedia, a pioneer of street photography and viewed photography as capturing a decisive moment. Uh, however, Chris can't communicate any of this. He's um, He really just like starts a sentence and then just leaves a long pause and uh, pretty much anyone he talks to in this episode like walks away from him. Like in this case, Walt is like, excuse me. And he's just like. <laughs> <laughs> right. I thought it was really interesting that um, he brings up that certain photographer because he has like that quote in the Wikipedia where it says like photography is not like a painting. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of apt to use yeah. that to describe Chris in this moment. It, it's almost like he's undeveloped film. And he's waiting for it mm. to his words to fully form, just like how a picture oh, that's cool. would, yeah, fully developed underneath there. Uh, one other thing that I saw, and this is like a little bit of an aside, but mm-hmm. uh, he talked about Mr. Brisson. He talked about how it was he never liked to photograph with flash, a practice he saw as impolite, like coming into a concert with a pistol in your hand. Mm-hmm. And I thought how strange it was that a lot of Famous people who discuss photography like to use the analogy of a gun whenever you take a photo of someone. Mm -hmm. Uh, Susan Sontag had a quote where she said, To photograph people is to violate them by seeing them as they never see themselves, by having knowledge of them that they can never have. Mm -hmm. It turns people into objects that can be symbolically possessed. Just as a camera is a sublimination of the gun, to photograph someone is a subliminal murder. A soft murder, Mm. appropriate to a sad, frightened time. And so they both use this analogy of saying, like, when you capture someone in this photo, they're done. Like, that moment (laughs) right there existed only at that time. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that is, quote-unquote, killing them. Overdramatic, yes, but also... Can make that, that, like, analogy to it, yeah. Right. Killing that moment. Or, like, capturing it is giving it life, but... Also immediately recognizing that that moment is done forever, too, when you have that mm-hmm. picture. Um, this is an aside, but we should really watch Yee Yee, Charles. It's not necessarily... Did we not? Uh, have you seen Yee Yee or... Wait, no, we no, didn't. No. Hang on. I got to confuse with... Um, what was that other movie wh- we watched? Um, it's a Yang, it, one, one Carway film. What is that one called? Oh, um, Happy Together. Happy Together. Happy Together, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but it's not necessarily about like how photography is killing people or anything or that metaphor, but it's, you said something about like how taking a photograph of someone is like taking uh, an image of something, so something they can't see themselves, you know, like you mm-hmm. can't physically see yourself, I guess, without a mirror or without a photograph, but it's like definitely a lot of heavy metaphor in Yee about like seeing things that you can't, like, how can we see these things about ourselves? Like, it's 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 really hard to peer into yourself. It sounds easy, like looking in a mirror, but it's difficult to really see yourself, you know, and there's a lot of discovery that comes with that. Yeah, how has Northern Exposure not had an episode yet <laughs> discussing, like, the, that nature of photography? I feel like that's something that, like, because the metaphor writes itself. I can yeah. easily see Chris pontificating about that on K-Bear. And then like the whole town maybe is like talking about photography in some way or another. And the very nature of it. Yeah. And, and like these thoughts were from like the 19, uh, 1980s. Yeah. These weren't like, mm-hmm. oh, this just someone just came up with this in 2022. It's like, no, we've sure, always been talking about uh, this. I'm pretty sure Chris name drops Susan Sontag before in this series, but maybe not uh, concerning those ideas. 
But yeah, we almost got that maybe a little bit in this scene. It's just Chris could not could not uh, materialize that thought, you know? Right. And so Walt walks away and meets up with Ruthann. And they sort of uh, hang out together. And uh, Joel, uh, oh, I'm I've, sorry. Joel uh, greets Ruthann first, I guess, Dr. Miller. Um, she had thought, you know, she's she's upset to be there late. Joel maybe didn't communicate the time properly. This is all just like uh, a little fluff to show that Joel is trying hard to impress her and not doing a great job. Like he's like, oh, I got this special uh, Lille, you know, that you really like. Ruthann says, no, I'll just drink cranberry juice. Joel says, okay, well, uh, what is it? It's like, we didn't, we didn't have cranberry juice, but I could send the caterer out. You know, he's like, he's, he's kind of going above and beyond and it's, uh, Ruthann can't be bothered. It seems she right. hooks arms with Walt and walks off. I think it's really interesting that Ruthann is depicted or described in red. So mm, yeah. she's wearing that red coat. She sheds the white lab coat that she had on mm-hmm. um, over it. She orders the cranberry juice. And I think Joel even uses the words to describe red, the red wine. Red. Yeah, red, yeah, red, red, red lay or whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'd be reaching a little bit over here. But like red, like anyone else can guess, is commonly associated with like anger and violence and passion mm-hmm. and just acting on your emotions. Uh, and it, I don't think that necessarily falls into Ruth Ann's character today. I, I, she's not like needlessly aggressive, mm-hmm. nor is she not that red has to symbolize that. Uh, but I'm just saying that like, it's not like she's actively seeking out something that she wants. If anything, it's a little bit more of like a resignation. Yeah. I was going to, I was just thinking, it's like, what is Ruthann's deal in this episode? Like at the end, she decides to retire basically. And I think it's, uh, well, I guess we'll talk about this. Maybe we can talk about this scene next. Uh, it's the, it's a scene with uh, Ruthann and Walt when they're like looking at a sunset and mm-hmm. they're kind of just remarking like, you know, we never take the time to view this beauty and like, where does all the time go? I actually have a bite. Let me play that real fast. Yeah. Oh my, it is beautiful. Funny thing, my office 60 floors up, all glass, looks out on Battery Park, Statue of Liberty, yet I never seem to take time to admire the view. My mother loved to watch the sunset. She'd take me by the hand, pull me out on the porch, as if it were some extraordinary theatrical event that we just couldn't miss. Where did all those years go? Yeah, and that that sort of um, almost like uh, longing for the past or disdain of like what she's done with her life. She's built herself into this uh, very successful doctor, and now looking back at it all, like was it worth it? You know, mm-hmm. I think it's it's also just like such a beautifully shot scene because. The sunset, no joke, does look really beautiful. I think like at the party, Bernard's like, oh, the sun is setting right now. We should go check it out. It looks stunning or whatever. And it really does look great. And there's like this wonderful two shot of um, Ruthann and Walt, sort of like that three quarters two shot, like uh, close up to their face, you know, kind of side by side. I think that really, you know, sell just makes a beautiful scene. I also wanted to maybe dig into, I think this is like maybe a little too over analyzing it, but I think this is a great example of a scene that um, is very like self 
reflexive, the show talking about itself, looking at itself. Um, this is probably definitely overdoing it, but Walt mentions that, you know, he has like this amazing office, like he's basically built himself into a very comfortable position in his life, uh, where he has this amazing view working in this high rise. He mentions that his office is on the 60th floor, 60 floors up. This is the sixth season. I, okay. I mean, I'm like looking a little too deep into this, but this is, for me, it's like this is a way that the writers are saying, like, we've built this amazing show for six seasons here, and now we're looking back at it. This is kind of what was giving me those, like, swan song vibes. Is this mm -hmm. the last season? Or is this just, like, re re reviewing, the like, the work they've done so far? I don't know. Yeah. I, I think that, like... Yeah, I mean, some people could <laughs> interpret it like the 60, you delete a zero and then you go six. Mm -hmm. But also in another way of looking at it, you can say like 60 is like 60s and age. Mm -hmm. And they're a little bit yeah. beyond 60s and age. But like that idea of a 60 floor building height represents uh, decadence. It represents right. wealth, things of that uh, nature. Yeah, that brings no happiness to Walt and Ruthann, who even actually talks about the the base of zero actually and the next scene that involves them because i'm going to skip forward a little bit more but there is like that ending scene where ruthann talks about another family member so she talked about her mother in this scene mm -hmm. and then she talks about her brother who had a knack for building paper airplanes which is in my opinion a pretty good symbol for freedom yeah it says it's flight mm -hmm. and she builds the paper airplane and she tosses it and it just goes all the way down and it drops from mm -hmm. 60 stories all the way down and she says that he she built it too top heavy so mm -hmm. she can't actually she's trying to retire and before she even does she tries to toss this paper airplane and it no longer has the ability to fly it no longer can carry with its own wings so i think that that can be read in another way of like her returning back to the ground right there nice yeah i, I love that um just that imagery of the plane too. It's so good. Uh, a couple things that happened before that. Let's see. There's like a bunch of little small scenes. Like um, I think we forgot to mention, but Mari, Maurice's character is like hoping for some like merger to happen. Like apparently mm -hmm. um, Ed's character had given him an inside scoop and he's going to like get it on the ground floor, make a lot of money because he bought a bunch of this stock and things are not looking so good. Um, like there's a news report that kind of is unsettling to Maury. He misses, uh, oh, he doesn't open the door when he should because he's distracted. Uh, it kind of gets chastised for that. Later, Joel invites Maggie to the buffet, um, but she declines, you know? So there's kind of almost like a brief moment where it seems like they're going to connect and they're kind of pulled apart by different things. I think uh, Dr. Miller in this scene comes to Joel and tests him with like a case. And she says, what do you think is wrong with my patient? He's got these symptoms. And Joel gives uh, lupus as an answer, but that's not very convincing to Dr. Miller. What else? Ed sees the ferret walking around, though he doesn't catch it yet, but I think he sees mm -hmm. it, right? He's like on the phone with someone. Oh yeah, did you follow in this scene? So he's talking, I, I watched this, um, actually I watched this episode twice in preparation for this record. And the second time, I think I started to get the sense that the conversation that he's having on the phone when he sees the ferret and gets distracted by the ferret, this conversation I think is about like 
how he's maybe screwed someone else over, not just Maury, but he's like, if this other person calls me begging for help, like tell him I'll give him 15 cents on the dollar. So like maybe this other person that, maybe there's another person that um, Ed is tricking as well mm. as Maury to buy these bad stocks because he knows he's gonna he's lying, saying that there's going to be this merger. He knows it's not going to happen. So that seems pretty messed up. Yeah, and there's like a short conversation between Ed and Shelly where mm -hmm. she is this lawyer. So they start talking about the bond issue a little bit. I think it's kind of interesting, but I think I'm reading much too into it if I say that the finance news is a little bit inverted from the original Maurice. So what I mean by this is that the man on the television, yeah. the reporter, says that this is all kind of short-sighted uh, and that's why it's going to crash. Maurice is investing into this short-sightedness, yeah. which is kind of not his character mm -hmm. because his whole deal supposedly, I mean, if he's written really well, is that he wants a long-term investment for Sicily. He wants to transform this place uh, from, you know, uh, this old podunk place into the, the Alaskan <laughs> Riviera. Words, I think he calls, or no, he calls something else podunk. I forget. Maybe he calls. Does he call it podunk? <laughs> not in this episode. I'm just thinking like, I've heard him say the word podunk, I think, right? Mm. <laughs> well, this, I mean, obviously images don't change overnight. So mm -hmm. this is a long-term goal for him. Yet in this one, he's duped by short-sightedness. And he even talks to Ed about mm. this. When he panics, they get him onto that buzzer thing right there. Yeah, the intercom. Yeah, I think that's like, looking at this realistically, like in real life, that's like way overstepping his boundaries. Like you're a doorman <laughs> and you're trying to contact like this incredibly rich person via like receiver. Yeah, uh, I think when Ed is walking into the building, Maury's like, can't you like call somebody? Ed's like, I've just gotten out of a bunch of meetings all day. I haven't been able to check the progress. Ed says, you know, I'm not going to call somebody. I'm about to walk into a party. What do you want me to do? Like, I'm going to a party. So, yeah, I think. But I don't know. Maybe we're supposed to believe Ed and Mari have some sort of friendship on the side. Though I would just believe, like, they probably just chat whenever Mari, like, opens the door for him, you know? So I, I think you're right. I feel like they don't really have a good rapport until maybe – the end of this episode. But um, I think we should also point out Shelly, um, when she's talking with Ed here about shareholders or some weird plot that they're devising, uh, she gets a little more upset and pours some Pepto-Bismol. Or she pours out her martini and fills the martini glass with Pepto-Bismol. No one at the party seems to remark that she's just drinking pep. I mean, I guess it's her party. She could do whatever she wants. <laughs> but I think that's pretty funny. Uh, I mean, hey, I'm not knocking it. I just think it's pretty cool that she's drinking like a Pepto martini. Right. Uh, she's trying to correct herself with this medicine right here because her stomach is burning. Yeah. And we can see this um, this problem within her that's inside her body also comes forth with her conversations with Rusan because she's trying to sell her on this whole idea of Joan of Arc and God and how how unfathomable it must all be. And Joel has to step in because mm -hmm. he's trying to do two things. He's trying to calm her down and also talk to Ruth Ann and correct his answer. And then Shelly loses her composure and mm -hmm. says like, why is it that in this society you can uh, talk about all these other immoral things yeah. so earnestly? Yeah. When I talk about God in a true manner, I get frowned upon and I, all I could think of in this scene, not to downplay it by any means, was like, this was written in 1995. Can't imagine a conversation would be like in the year 2022. 
<laughs> like you could like the how she oh here let me play the well i'll play the sound bite in a sec but she's listing like you can talk about this and that but then like in 22 it's like even more depraved or whatever yeah so you can talk about this <laughs> i don't even want to say it because i'll end up having to bleep it or something when we're uh when i'm editing it but uh but let me play that sound bite because i think it's a pretty um important scene in the episode why is it that in this society, you can talk about the most intimate things. You can talk about your dysfunctional sex life. You can talk about your abduction by aliens, your tummy tuck, your breast implants. You can talk about anything, anything except your longing for God. Surely, you know, I never thought about it that way. Yeah, and for some reason, Ruth Ann is like very, I mean, I don't know for some reason, but, you know, Ruth Ann is, um, seems to be like very genuinely, you know, listening Whereas Joel is very, uh, maybe more anxious to talk about things like that, these personal things. And I guess that kind of fits with his character being sort of like, I guess, as you were saying, like he does identify as Jewish, but he doesn't have a strong uh, connection to like faith in religion or anything like that. And there are a few episodes that kind of dive into that more. So it kind of fits into that, what we know of Joel. Uh, I wanted to mention that Joel, when he comes to join Shelley and Dr. Miller here, he's, as you were saying, he's like amending his answer. Uh, when, when Dr. Miller had asked him, what do you think's wrong with my patient? He says, I don't think it's lupus. This time he says, uh, that is Hanta fever, or I think it's also called Hantavirus, which I think I, man, I tried to look this up. I think this was a case in another episode of Northern Exposure. Does Hantavirus or Hanta fever sound Hmm. Uh, familiar to you listener if you know i feel like it's in season five maybe it was the lady no 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 no. who is it i feel like this was a thing maybe this was the thing when uh remember when joel was like i finally found this special case but no one understands like i can explain it to you but it doesn't make sense unless you're another doctor and then maggie finds like a a doctor to go on like dates with them you know so maybe it's that episode, but listener, if you uh, if you know the episode, if if there is another mention of Hanta fever or Hantavirus, please write us at uh, Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, but anyway, we live in a society, as uh, Shelley says. <laughs> um, I wrote down I wrote down in my notes. I, we already talked about this, but I was like, while I was watching this episode, around this point in the episode, I was like, this is so cool because we see how not Northern Exposure this episode is, like how far removed it is from the core of these characters. And yet there's those, as we've already mentioned, those like feelings of what is traditional Shelley and like what is traditional to Ruthann and Joel. It's like still there just beneath the surface, like wanting to come out. Right. And speaking on that, we can see that in the next scene that involves Shelley again, but she's lying in her bed, and she thinks it's Joel that's coming in to check in on her, but it's actually hauling. Mm. And he steps inside and he tries to comfort her. And he notices the moose that's hanged mm-hmm. on the wall. And this moose is also like a connecting figure. Yeah. Like something that's trying to drag them back into the center. Because Shelly remarks that she just had to have it. There was some sort of feeling working underneath her that said, I have to have yeah. this. And it also draws Hollings' attention by him remarking upon it. Yeah, I think he calls it a deer at first, and she has to correct him that it's a moose. Um, but he still is uh, very enamored with it, even though he maybe doesn't right. understand it in his current form. And this is where the discussions of 
feeling they have blindfolds mm-hmm. on comes in, which is, I don't think it's a coincidence. I think it's like, you know, it's purposeful writing. You talk about the symbol of Sicily. Then you talk about taking off these blindfolds mm-hmm. and being able to see clearly between there. Uh, and this is also where Shelley invites Hauling to step outside. Though I think at this point, we know that Hauling is an agoraphobic. Yes, he has a that fear has been mentioned. of open spaces. That has been mentioned earlier. I think whenever they're going out to uh, watch the sunset, Hauling is kind of nervously, you know, saying, no, it's okay, I'll stay inside. And Walt has to explain to Ruthann, don't you know that that man is an agoraphobic or something like that? Um, I just wanted to read that blindfold quote. I really liked it. Uh, He says, Hauling says, it's like I'm walking around with a blindfold on. It's like if someone would just rip it off, I could see. I could make some sense of my life. And I've we're talking about this again and again, but what we've already said of like, it feels like these characters, it's so cool later. I guess we'll get to the scene, like, right. If you want to just keep going where he literally says to her, I'm a prisoner, Shelly. Like, it feels like the characters are trapped in a reality that is not correct. And they, they <laughs> want to get back to Northern exposure, you know, which right. is such a, it's almost if they went a little further, it could almost be horror. You know, this is like kind of scary, <laughs> but it's uh, just very intriguing, I think, because it didn't, doesn't go that far, but it's just so cool, I think. I don't know. I like it. And before we leave the scene, I just wanted to point out that Hollings says something like, it's just not fulfilling this life that we live. You know, don't you feel that sometimes? Like, you know, even I, I have like a Grammy and two Tonys and I even have a duet with Ella on the last album. You know, but that's not fulfilling enough. What's funny is I'm pretty sure most of that is also true for the real life actor John Cullum, because we know he's won two Tony Awards for his work in musicals. And I think he's also like featured on a, a Grammy Award winning recording uh, of a musical. I don't I don't know about the Ella part, but I wonder if there's any recordings with John Cullum and uh I'm assuming that's Ella Fitzgerald. I don't know. That's what I thought too. I was like, <laughs> Ella Fitzgerald? Yeah. Uh, he is on the recording of, um, gosh, you sent it to me. Yeah, it's like 1970 something, or like there's 19 or 1776 or something. Like the, let me look it up real fast. Well, Shenandoah is one. I know that. That's it. Yeah. But I think he's also featured in, maybe, oh, I'm thinking of his other like film credit, which I don't think is a Tony Award, but, um, Shenandoah, and uh, he also got, um, he also was big in this musical on the 20th century. Yeah, he's he's on the original Broadway cast recording, mm-hmm. which is like, that's, that's always really cool because that's solidified in history. We should listen <laughs> to that or something for a Patreon. Well, that would, we can't like feature any of the music, obviously, but we should like listen to it just to give our thoughts on like, <laughs> I, I'd be curious. I've, I've never seen any of those musicals. So I've only heard Shenandoah. Not, yeah. I, I haven't seen it. I sent you, I think, uh, remember I sent you like a YouTube link. They had made like TV advertisements for yeah. Shenandoah. So it was like filmed scenes from that musical, but obviously they didn't like film the entire musical as like a movie, but there is, I guess, a recording, uh, audio recording of the music, you know? But those on YouTube, I guess if you search like John Cullum, Shenandoah, you'll see some pretty cool little like trailers, I guess, for this musical that uh, were just advertisements on TV where it's like, go see John Cullum in Shenandoah. And it's pretty good. That had to have been a local ad. There's no way they would advertise (laughs) that to like, I don't know, some kid in uh, Oklahoma. (laughs) They're like, oh man, I'm going to go 3,000 miles. Big city. (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, to bring us to the next scene, this is actually, in my opinion, I think it is the third time that Joel steps into a new place. Mm. So the first time is Sicily. Second time is when he steps through Ed's closet and he transported to New York City. This is the third one where he goes to check up on his kids in their own room. And there is a distinct difference between that rich Manhattan City marble, that white ballroom, in this child's suburban room that you could pick out of a lineup in a medium-sized town. It feels so distinctly different when he steps into mm-hmm. here that I really had to praise the design of the entire thing and just the feeling that it gives off. It, it feels very tender and warm. It's such a flashback yeah. into what could have been. So Joel steps into his children's room and there's an assortment of things that are scattered across the screen. A ferret's mm-hmm. cage, a poster of animals, this book that Maggie's reading over that is surely like, it looks like one of those like early encyclopedias yeah. that you get to teach kids about some basic things. Really, this entire scene is my favorite scene, and it's shot very well. Joel is standing up when he enters in. Mm-hmm. Maggie is kneeling, so you can already see a little bit of where the power dynamic is based mm-hmm. on their blocking throughout there. And as they talk about their past and what they wanted to be as a kid, Joel, a doctor, Maggie, not really too sure, they occupy their own frames for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Originally, it had both of them. The camera was on both while Joel hops on the trampoline. Mm -hmm. But then Maggie goes into her own frame and it does these reaction shots between Joel and Maggie. But then as Maggie gets closer to her realization, she's understanding her place of where she wants to be. She subtly folds into Joel's side of the screen. It includes them now in the same frame. Mm-hmm. And then they could do an over-the-shoulder shot to go do the reactions now. And I thought that was a really nice subtle change to use camera work to talk about how Maggie was coming into the realization, her yeah. self-actualization of herself. Yeah, I like that. I also, why do you think Joel's jumping on a tr- small trampoline? <laughs> I was it's like, watching this the second time, I was like, that's got to be like the one of the writers being like, this is a me- this is a metaphor for something, you know. I'm like <laughs> trying to because it is such because they the reason why is they do cut back to it later, and he's mm-hmm. jumping. I think it's right. literally just they just cut back to him jumping, and then he gets off and like he checks his watch, and then he goes out, and mm-hmm. then cuts to something else. So obviously it's there for him to like get distracted and occupy some time, so he's not at the party for a bit, whatever. Like that's a plot reason, but. Uh, I don't know. The The only reading I could think of is like on a trampoline, you are constantly going up and down and up and down, though you're confined in this small trampoline. You're confined in like mm-hmm. one spot. So you're just going up and down, up and down. And I'm trying to look at this like in a meta way. Is this trying to say like the ups and downs of like every episode of Northern Exposure, you know, like is going, you know, it's a story that has like a, like a dramatic arc up and down. However, mm-hmm. like he's still feels trapped in like maybe this is something i haven't communicated yet in this episode but maybe there's also sort of a bit of a dread amongst the creators of the show the writers the actors that's like you know we made it to season six that's pretty amazing but it's like we have to do a whole other season of this like this what do we do now we're kind of trapped aren't we trapped like going up and down and up and down and maybe this is episode is trying to Talk about that anxiety while also show that it's like, well, 
I mean, there's still a lot that we can do, you know? Yeah, I think you bring up a lot of interesting perspectives of what the trampoline could mean. I think that number one, Joel says, I've always wanted to use one of these. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a callback to childhood yeah. of what he's trying That's to true. relive. Because he says that since he was six, he always knew he wanted to be a doctor. And so when you think of doctor, you have this image of your mind of what a doctor is. Somebody that lives in a fancy penthouse and has this uh, very successful wife and throws these fancy parties. But now that he's jumping on the trampoline and reliving his childhood, or really just living it for the first time, he's starting to realize and coming back to square one that things are different, which might play into that theme with Walt with a 60-story building because now you're just going up and down, so we're using the theme of height. But mm-hmm. I, I'm not totally in love with that. What I wanted to remark, though, was that you used a trampoline as the symbol of going up and down, but you're mm-hmm. still stuck in place. Here's the really cool thing about symbols, is that they don't have one meaning. If anything, if it only does have one meaning, it's no longer a symbol, but actually an allegory. Mm-hmm. Those are two different things. The reason I bring this up is because, uh, spoilers for those who haven't read Catcher in the Rye, <laughs> but at the end of Catcher in the Rye, we see that, uh, God, what is the girl's name? Hayden and um, Phoebe. Phoebe. We see that Phoebe rides this carousel, this horse carousel, and it goes around and around and up and down and up and down. And for Holden, at least in the interpretation that I like to use, is that that's when he slowly realizes that adulthood isn't just like a linear line toward corruption or just a life full of crap as he's been exposed to his entire (laughs) life. It's actually something that goes up and down. It, It has highs and lows and it's up to you to ride them out just as Phoebe is going mm-hmm. up and down on the carousel. It's very optimistic uh, in this viewpoint. But yet, he's still she's still stuck in place on this carousel. She's still just moving around mm-hmm. in the circle. And that can kind of be used in the same way as the trampoline, where you're going up and down, but you're still stuck in place. But like all symbols, it's really up to you and how you want to interpret it and then utilize that in order to bolster your experience or your understanding of what's happening in the story. So in that case, I think that your reading is really good. I think there's something to be said of Joel not moving in place whatsoever. At least the carousel moves in a circle. This one's literally stuck in place as he plays with a child's toy going up and down. So I think that you, you, you got it. I think right there, I think it's a really good symbol. Well, yeah, I just want to piggyback on what you're saying about how uh, the interesting thing about a symbol is that it doesn't mean just one thing and that I don't want to also just be like, that is the we, we, case closed, you know, I really right. I think that speaks well to me. But, you know, trampoline doesn't just mean like you jump and you go up and down and up and down. Trampoline also means like it's springy. Like it also means, as you mentioned, childhood. I thought that was an amazing read, too, because he's he's even in the text of this scene, he's saying you know, what do you want to be when you're a kid? And he's like, maybe taking his current life um, into effect with like what he wanted as a kid. And I think we get this with Dr. Miller as well later when she's like, you know, she got all, she's basically like reached her her peak and like, was it even worth it? You know, like Joel mm-hmm. got to be a doctor here is what he wanted to be. He knew what he wanted to be when he was a kid, was a doctor. And 
now that he has it, is that even so important? Like, as we see by the end of this episode, he denies uh, Dr. Miller's um, proposal, I guess. Right. And that's also, it's not like there's only one correct way in this episode of how to approach living. Because mm-hmm. Joel says that he's done since he was six, that he wanted to be a doctor, and he goes on this trampoline and everything like that. But then Maggie counters and says, I've changed my major six times Mm -hmm. and I settled on art history, which (laughs) something you believe that she doesn't feel like extremely powerful uh, about based Mm -hmm. on her language choice. She says, uh, I know more about Van Roosdale than anybody should. Right. (laughs) And you get this idea that neither of them are really happy. Joel is not happy that it was decided for him when he was six. Maggie is not happy that she was very wishy-washy about the whole thing. But I think the thing that makes it really also beautiful and a little bit more toward Maggie's side is that they're in a child's room that's scattered with so many things that your Mm -hmm. eyes can't even comprehend it on one look. Yeah. It can be anything that you want. And that's the cool thing. Yeah. You kind of already described, you did a great job describing it. I just want to also piggyback. You're right. There's literally too much to look at. The Props to the production design in this scene and whoever built this set. Because as you're saying, it really evokes that sense of childhood. And there's like, there is no blank space. You know, there's so much to look at that is like posters and, you know, the aquarium, things like that. Uh, We forgot to mention Maggie when they're, okay, so when they're picking up, when Joel walks in, they start picking up some toys and things. Joel picks up some nunchucks, which I think is funny. (laughs) Um, And then Maggie picks up a toy plane. Okay, yeah, Maggie is a pilot. We get it. Um, So there's, yeah, there's a couple things like that. Um, But okay, let's move to that next scene when Holling and Shelly get outside. And actually, okay, this is... uh, I think this is a pretty awesome scene. I don't really have a lot of notes in it, but maybe it's kind of short, but very impactful. Basically, Shelly and Holling get outside the apartment building and um, it's revealed that Holling is agoraphobic and he has to explain to Shelly. And this is when he says, I'm a prisoner, Shelly, which I thought was really sort of meta in a way. Uh, But Mm -hmm. she assures him, you know, like, you know, now we're going to go to the park. You know, he says something like, I haven't touched a tree in over 20 years And she's like, well, tonight you will. And she's like, very assuring. She's going to work this out with him. Like, she'll be there the whole time. And it works, I guess, because they do end up later getting on like a horse-drawn carriage. Yeah. I think it's kind of neat that when Holling steps outside, he's framed uh, with the green leaves. And he Mm, stays with the green leaves right there. So it's always in his background. Yeah. So it plays into his favor of nature and wanting to touch a tree. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. Um Let's jump ahead a little just to talk about that scene in Central Park um, mm-hmm. where they're riding around uh, on the, the horse-drawn carriage. Hauling maybe is a little uncomfortable, but Shelly still is, you know, trying to comfort him. And she talks about how, um, you know, there's, she says, there are a lot of things in Central Park that grow wild that are actually edible. You know, this this line comes directly after Ed, like, picks up the Mr. Brown, the ferret, mm-hmm. which we'll get into more, but he's like, you know, this animal doesn't belong here. He belongs in the wild. Subtext. Yeah. <laughs> what do you, what, so let's talk about that. Cause it's that line. And then it goes straight to, 
Shelly talking about how there's a lot of things in Central Park that grow wild and you can actually eat them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely huge subtext. <laughs> like he like stares into like barrel into the lens. <laughs> it's like this animal doesn't belong here. <laughs> belongs in the wild. <laughs> it's maybe the spirit of Northern Exposure. Is that what we're trying to say? Like it belongs to be, it needs to be freed or something or what? <laughs> well, like just or like the characters just don't the characters belong here. the characters themselves, they're like, yeah. I was trying to read even more meta and be like, what is the, the, cause the, yeah, the, the idea that he's saying that is like, we all don't belong here. We need to get back to Sicily, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but maybe we could say that, uh, you know, the show, the essence of the show is something that can't be contained, you know? Um, we try to put a formula to it. Yeah. This could be, if we're reading it, I'm, I like to interpret this episode as like the writers are trying to say, they're trying to look back at their work and say like, you know, if we try to follow like these cookie color ideas, it's not going to work. We have to be free, like just as much as we were in the first season, like we're kind of reviewing all the work we've made so far and like understanding that we maybe have turned Northern Exposure into a bit of a machine. Like it's become a thing because we've been doing it for five seasons and we know how to churn out an episode you know, every week or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we can't lose sight of the idea that this creative force of Northern Exposure should be treated as like a wild essence. And um, we can't get too comfortable in just, I don't know, the fears of like maybe why the show is going to end or it's like, you know, it becomes too formulaic or I don't know. Yeah, I think that there's something to be said right there. Though I'm not like... It's hard to get into a writer's yeah. space <laughs> and understand what, what they were saying. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm taking a big assumption saying like, oh, they knew that the show was going to end when they probably didn't. They're just like, they're just like, let's well, write a season six premiere. I don't know. I from, my, from what I read, it looks like they got canceled out of nowhere. Yeah. So, so it like, seems like. Yeah. I think that's what it always feels like to a lot of people, but I don't know. Yeah. Which I always feel is like, I don't know. I guess it's like kind of <laughs> like, I, I understand why they do it. If you're one of the executives, but like everything about it seems like you're going to turn out an inferior product rather than tell them at the beginning of the season to be like, hey, network approved one more season is going to be your last season. Don't hope for any more. Like, why, why are you? They always do it to them when they're like halfway through the seasons. It's like, well, I mean, it's like, well, we write like 12 just, episodes yeah. ahead. Yes. Yeah, so it's now we just have to like phone it in for the rest or something. Yeah. Rather, if you tell them at the beginning, it's like, all right, well, you can form a complete story. Yeah. You would hope. Right. But anyway, back to what's happening in the Central Park theme. Oh, yeah. So I was just going to say the ending of the scene is like somehow when Ruthann, remember how she like threw that paper airplane and it did Mm -hmm. a straight nosedive to the ground? Well, somehow it actually wound up in Central Park because it um, this paper airplane falls on Shelly and she's like, oh, wow, a paper airplane. She unravels it and it's a page from my offering circular, she says. Do you know what do you know what an offering circular is? No, what is it? I, I, I was hoping you would say because I mean I Googled <laughs> it. I'll just read. I mean, I don't know what any of this means, but uh, an offering circular, an offering memorandum uh, is a type of perspective for a bond or other security. Sometimes this is also referred to as a prospectus, offering memorandum, OC for short. Uh blah 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 blah. In certain case, um, Offering memoranda are needed when seeking securities, identifications, numbers, or listing on various global stock exchanges. 
No, I still don't know what that really means to, to me, but I wonder if that has any meaning. Oh, it's definitely, I, yeah. It's like a transcript of sorts whenever you're about to buy something. So they'll tell you like the the information that's associated with it. So let's say you wanted to buy, I don't know, let's say Twitter since that's in the news. <laughs> they might give you an offering memorandum to be like, hey, mm-hmm. let me tell you about the risk and objectives in terms of uh, an investment involved with a private placement. Something like that. So uh, jibber jabber, it doesn't really matter. The big thing to take in mind is that it's something to anchor her back to her financial days. Yeah. I guess like, cause she was right before this saying like, you know, like, like what my, um, real life secret fantasy is, is I would love to open a restaurant and Holling thinks that's a great idea. That thought is interrupted by this uh, page from the offering circular. And I guess that's, I'm just guessing like, because she does end up back at the party. So maybe that like pulls her back in. Wasn't totally sure. I think it's just a stark reminder. It helps her come to her decision that arrives later in the episode. But before we get to there, we have like a uh, one more kind of major plot, and it's involving Chris and Maurice. Mm-hmm. So Maurice gets the news. He steps outside to go get a paper because evidently, I, I guess it's like late into the night with this party and the yeah. publishing papers have already come out with the next day's paper. Something like that. And Chris follows him and Chris is musing to Maurice kind of like a callback to their old days of how they would hang out at K bear and stuff yeah. like that. And yeah, cause Maurice is like behind a desk. I didn't even think right. about that. Wow. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty so cool. Chris is panicking about not finding his voice. Yeah. And Maurice is panicking by having lost his money. <laughs> Both of which are things that, uh or to be found yeah so they manifest themselves in different ways oh before i even get to that just to hammer home the metaphor the guy who's selling the paper is blind yeah he's got those dark glasses he even like says like maurice is like is this today's paper he's like you tell me man <laughs> it's like I'm, <laughs> I'm the blind one it's pretty funny so yeah chris is not still not even successful with maurice here because Maurice is like, like, shush, I, I can't be bothered right now. Um, a couple other things that we uh, jumped over real fast. Ruthann talking to Walt saying, I think I'm going to be retiring. Well, we talked about that. That's when she throws mm-hmm. the um, newspaper. But I wanted to point out uh, some of the lines she says in there. She talks about the idea of retirement being beautiful, not having to meet anyone's expectations. It's like entering a state of grace. Some I don't know if she says that or Walt does. I just wrote that down. And um, yeah, I mean, like, we'll get to it too, but there's uh, a lot of talk about quitting in a way in this episode. We'll get to with Chris uh, pretty soon. Um, we briefly touched on it, but, you know, the ferret does come out like and shocks all the guests at the party. Everyone sees it. And Ed is like, everyone be calm. And I guess it's like the sort of like Indian, I guess you would say, according to Northern Exposure, or like the shaman inside of Ed, the budding shaman who is like, has this sort of like communication with animals. And so he's able to calm down the ferret with like a little cracker and picks it up, you know, and he says that line, this animal doesn't belong here. He belongs in the wild. Right. Yeah, uh, before we get to yeah. that, the, the big climax of it, one of the smaller ones, but equally as important, is Chelly coming back to the party. And Ruthann tells Joel that she's going to make him partner. 
Yeah. And Joel's obviously ecstatic. And Shelly is too. But then Shelly drops the bomb that they want to get a divorce. Yeah. And that's, you know, to Joel, he doesn't understand it at all. To Shelly, obviously, you can tell that, like, uh, the relationship burned down and she doesn't feel any fire from it. So she wants to move away from the thing. So already we can see a departure from the characters in this universe. There's a change that's coming about, and that's uh, the first big one. Yeah, she says to Joel, we just weren't meant to be together, which is, you know, calling back to the original series, Northern Exposure. You know, they're not, Joel and Shelley don't end up together. But so we've kind of reached a sort of climax for the episode. Um, Maggie rushes to Joel. I guess this is when Joel and Shelley are talking about getting a divorce. Maggie says, I'm sorry to interrupt you guys, but one of the party attendees is like out on the ledge. It's like out there right now. And we run out and we see Chris like sort of in a position to make a suicide leap, I guess. Like he wants to jump off and end it. You know, people are gathered around him. I think Shelly is saying like, no, didn't you tell me you had so much to live for? You wanted to do this and that, like travel all of South America and Chris is like, uh, no, I don't think I said that. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't, I'm not really sure what to make of that, but whatever. Like, I guess that never happened. Uh, I think it's funny. Also, Bernard says, you know, we're shooting Kate Moss for Sedona next week or something or in Sedona next week. Um, I thought that was pretty funny, but I have a soundbite. So let me play mm-hmm. that of like uh, Maggie talking to Chris here on the ledge. That's the problem right there. Nobody listens to you, right, Chris? You can climb out on that ledge to kill yourself. You just want to be heard. I just... Hey, we all want to be heard, Chris. Isn't that right? That's right. I just... Look, Chris, I'm sure you're full of aesthetic insights and political commentary, cultural observations. I just get stuck in my mouth. I don't... I don't blame you all for turning your back on me. Oh! 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 Whoa. Oh, help me down. Come on. Help me down. Oh, easy, 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 easy. I could have died. Yeah. No, I mean, I could have, I could have really died. Total silence forever and ever. So I guess there's like the surface read of like Chris is sort of the voice, normally the voice of Northern Exposure, you know, and so his character in this forced alternate reality is struggling with the fact that like he's lost his ability to convey ideas when normally in, in the normal Northern Exposure, you know, this is something that he does with ease and just eloquence. But I also, I have to like apply my meta read into it of like Chris often serves as like the message for the show and like maybe the lifeblood in the sense of like the writer's voice of the show. And like, is this scene in a way depicting like the writer's desire to end it? Like to, you know, do they feel shunned by audiences? You know, Chris says, uh, I don't blame you for looking away or go, or go walking away from me, you know? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, I don't, there's no, I don't have any evidence to suggest that the show was like 
panned by audiences. I think it was very popular. Maybe it was starting to dip at this point, but I don't have any evidence for that. And also, again, I don't I don't think the writers knew that the show was going to end at this point. Maybe they did, but um, it feels to me I'm maybe too focused on that read. But it feels like the show talking about almost ending. You know, maybe there was a point when Brandon Falsey left and they were like, should we just end this? And instead mm-hmm. they walked down from the ledge, you know? Right. Uh it's hard because I, I want to say I mean, it was enough to get advertised on TV Guide. Yeah. <laughs> it was enough to win awards. I feel like at the time that it was airing, it was in a national conversation. People knew about it when they were uh, had cognizant thought. So Northern Exposure was definitely reaching to audiences. And I think that by the time it rolled around for season six and having to get through the the slog of season five, I think that audiences could realize that it was no longer near its peak. It was on the other side of the mountain, mm-hmm. so to speak. Yeah. So I think that your meta-analysis works, though I think it works in a lot of ways. Yeah. Because in my opinion, I think that the inability to communicate your thoughts, it's a really universal feeling. Mm-hmm. And that applies to like everything, I find. And the ones that are that speak the most to people the the artists are the ones that depict an inability to communicate very eloquently. So in this instance, they're using Chris as the mouthpiece, like you said, the lifeblood. Yeah. And he usually would deliver a sermon that will <laughs> allow them to see, just like he is now able to see and talk at the climax of the episode where he talks about taking off the blindfolds and really feeling the heartbeat that's between people. Mm-hmm. But yeah, going back to your original one, I think that, yeah, like I, I get what you're saying, <laughs> the the miscommunication right here. But I also wanted to add that like it, it's such a good theme and it's also yeah. been done like a lot, but I never get tired of it. I never get tired yeah. of hearing about our inability to communicate with one another right there, which For sure. which in a way is very connecting because it's mm-hmm. you're always going to have that feeling. That you're, yeah. you're never truly expressing yourself to another individual at 100% capacity. There's always some delay in information, something in which we're not seeing. And the only way that we can come close to bridging this divide is just to listen to each other, even though you'll still never reach 100%. Yeah. And what's funny is, like, there's a lot of things that can't be expressed with words. So, like, you know, the fact that Chris can't find the words right now could also point to that. It's like, you know, there's a lot of things happening without words uh, that are expressing ideas and then we can draw meaning from, you know, but fortunately Chris does find his voice because we do get like a Chris sermon. Um, Immediately after Chris steps off the ledge there, steps down from the ledge, uh, Maurice has come into the penthouse with a gun to shoot Ed. We talked about, you talked about this earlier, Charles. I think it's funny. Maurice is like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take this out on you, Ed. Put that ferret down. I didn't come up here to kill an innocent animal. And like Ed says, no, like he's not gonna put the ferret down. And so Maurice just like gives, I think it's kind of funny. It's like, I guess he's just not gonna shoot him now because the ferret's there. <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. There there is like a there's an interesting um sort of connection that Ed and Maurice get later, where Ed comes by when Maurice is like drinking away his sorrows because he's lost everything. Uh, because of this failed merger he was lied to about. Ed decides he's going to compensate Maurice. Um, 
And um, he says, I can't really explain it to you, but when I reached down and picked up this poor, terrified animal, and I felt its heart beating just racing in its chest. I don't know. That's that's something that spoke to Ed. And uh, maybe, I don't know. What do you read? What do you read about this change of heart here? Mm, probably the easiest uh, to read into it would probably be Ed tapping into his humanity. Yeah. Probably. That would be the most direct parallel that I can think of right there. Because he's realizing that the money doesn't really matter. Which is kind of odd that I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, not not so much on Ed, but mostly on Maurice. Because in this scene, Maurice is talking about how this experience has ennobled him. He feels like mm-hmm. he's forged in fire. That <laughs> the difficulties have now forged him into a new, stronger individual. But then... I don't want to be the person that like nitpicks too much on these types of things, <laughs> but Ed does come in and kind of undercuts the entire ordeal by saying, like saves you him. know what? I'll pay you back yeah. what you are owed 30 grand, something like that. So he goes and writes in the check, uh, nothing against his performance. I thought Ed, uh, Darren Burroughs performed that very well. Cause I think there's even like the slightest look in his eye that yeah. goes up when Maurice says 30 grand mm-hmm. as if to say like, that's so little money. That's yeah. so like there's that like you're you're losing your your mind over such a little thing. Like I, now I'm definitely in the right. Now I definitely know that money is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's cool when uh when he's writing the check, Maurice says to Ed, you know, make it out to Maurice Minifield, would you please? Mm-hmm. So he's taking right. hold of his name again. Things are realigning back to Sicily, perhaps. Mm-hmm. I just want to point out one idea, one thought I had about the um, change of heart that Ed has is like when Maurice points the gun at Ed, he says, I didn't come up here to kill an innocent animal. And you had pointed out, something I didn't think of at first, but you had pointed out how Ed, the actor, Darren Burroughs, does a lot of calculation with his eyes, kind of looking back mm-hmm. and forth the gun, Maurice. And maybe uh, there's a way you could interpret this, like that line, I didn't come up here to kill an innocent animal. Ed is holding, he feels the heartbeat of this terrified animal. And maybe he's thinking of himself as an innocent animal too, as a scared animal. And he's thinking of Maurice and he's like, we're all, you know, like he's saying, we're all just, we don't belong here. We're all lost we should be in the wild mm-hmm. or something. Maybe he's like comparing us all to innocent animals and then he feels like this money doesn't matter because like, you know, we're all just scared little ferrets, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that kind of plays into what happens immediately afterwards after he cuts the check is that Joe and Walt have a small conversation and Joel mm-hmm. saying like, shouldn't we call the police? Like something <laughs> in which someone's life was being endangered. Yeah. And we just ignored it. And uh, and then someone, the caterer, who he's had small conversations with, uh, the caterer seems to be a little bit privy to Joel's predicament. The caterer comes in and says, hey, we've run out of kiwi tarts. All we got is lemon tarts. And Joel says, how can that be the only thing that you're caring about at this point? Mm-hmm. Like someone almost got murdered. All you're thinking about is this decadence that's happening in this Manhattan penthouse. Mm-hmm. This is absurd. And then to... Really finish out the one-two punch. And that's where Maggie comes in and talks to him and says, I want to realign myself. Mm-hmm. I want to quit being an au pair 
and I want to see what I want to do with my life. In a way, like if you want to really look into it, she is like a pilot and she's taken off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting because earlier in the episode, you know, she talks about wanting to really get out and, you know, get her hands dirty and like, you know, get experience. And then she's like, oh, but you know, like I wouldn't want to quit this job. Like it's such a nice job, you know. And then she does quit at the end here, which is, you know, obviously she's going to her own personal freedom as you're saying, like taking off like a pilot. Interesting that Maggie quits when we know we've been spoiled or you've been spoiled, Charles. You know that Joel mm-hmm. does leave the show. The actor, Rob Morrow, eventually leaves the show within this season. Um, that's my, I'm just trying to find a meta read here. But this, <laughs> this would have, like, it, it would have served as such a good solidifying thing. For Joel's character, if he had stayed, because immediately afterwards he goes and has the the epiphany and he talks to right. Ruth Ann's character and says, like, mm-hmm. I don't want the promotion. I don't want to be made partner. I'd rather practice medicine in some hick rural outback than stay here another minute. Yeah. It gets worked back. And it's like uh <laughs> it's like the M dash that comes at the end of a sentence. Like this whole entire thing was like intro blurb, M dash, whole block of running, run on <laughs> sentence paragraph. M dash end of sentence. It's exactly yeah. like that. He's, so <laughs> yeah, because he's like brought back to Ed's apartment as if like he had just walked into, well, I guess what he thought was the bathroom. It's actually the closet. He comes right, comes back out. and it, it makes this moment really strong if you look at it in a vacuum, where you think like, okay, yeah, Joel staying. He's gonna be here for yeah. Sicily and everything. But you know, in the back of your mind, when you're watching this in 2022, with some sort of knowledge, I like. No, he, he leaves at some point and he doesn't return. Yeah. I guess I'll talk about that when it, the well, moment yeah, arrives. We'll, but I, we'll see it when it happens. I think it's bananas. Guess. I think that's so bananas. You're, dude, I don't, I don't even want to talk about it anymore because I because I don't want to spoil anything, but it's it's interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's some major, again, I, I mentioned before, I've only seen this season once, but it has like some major like plot points, like, like at certain episodes that are like key to telling the story of Northern Exposure. And like it fortunately does end, you know, so there are some huge plot changing moments, I guess. Anyway, we won't talk about that until we get there. Um, Before we do wrap up this episode, I did want to play the soundbite back in our alternate reality. So we're going back into the the closet of alternate reality. And I wanted to play that soundbite of uh, when Chris does actually get his voice and have like a little bit of that uh, Chris monologue. Homo kaikagenist est. Man is born blind. We're little moles, telling under the winter eye, unaware of the sky above us. We're ignorant, folks. Don't matter how many PhDs we got permaplaked on the wall, we're blind and we're ignorant. Chris? And there's one piece of information that we don't have. The only piece that'll pry open those baby blues, knowledge of self. The answer to all our questions is right here. Library of Congress. Kabir, Sufi poet, he knew. Near your breastbone, there's an open flower, he said. Drink the honey that is all around that flower. Yeah, Chris mentions like we're all like tunneling moles or like little animals tunneling moles down there. And that evokes the image of like a ferret, you know, and (laughs) the ideas of saying like how we're all terrified animals. Um, Also, just thinking about like, how he says like the knowledge of self is like the one thing we don't have and it's what we all need to really get a good perspective on, on everything else. And like looking at that from the writer's perspective, 
is like, what is it that makes Northern Exposure Northern Exposure? And I think that this episode, you know, maybe again, I'm just attributing too much to this idea of like, this is what the writers are doing. But it's interesting to think that like, they would be like, all right, we need to like really get back to what makes Northern Exposure so good. And so like, we're going to go as far away as we can from Northern Exposure to try to learn about what it is that mm-hmm. is the show. You know, they're going to this completely alternate reality. Right. I felt there was one distinct moment in this episode where I felt like, oh, this is like Northern Exposure, capital N, capital E. And it was the <laughs> moment where Ruth Ann was talking with Walt about the paper airplanes that she was yeah. tossing. Mm-hmm. And I kept thinking, I was like, this will be very difficult to pull off in another television show, just to segue into that. But because Northern Exposure has talented writers behind it and we've we're experiencing the ways that our conversation sounds the syllables that they use and the consonants that are spoken we understand that like this can come a little bit out of left field but somehow still work yeah i thought to myself i was like it's a damn shame that we're in season six (laughs) because i would like to see more of this or like it's a damn shame that we (sighs) we couldn't revisit this again like we live the good days of like season yeah. season two and season three. I mean, we visit them again. I think we said it like season five wasn't as good as like the ones before. That doesn't mean it was like bad at all. But you know, it's like I'm I'm actually really thrilled about how much I loved this episode, and like I love the content of it. But I just think like the conceit, just the whole like concept of this episode, is kind of like blowing my mind about how. I guess meta they got with it or like how like, um, in, uh, what's the word? Like introspective, I guess they're like talking about finding their own self-knowledge. Even if you just look at it in the sense of the characters wanting to like return to their true selves, you know, Mm -hmm. that's really cool. Um, but we do end this episode back in Sicily. Joel is a little, you know, maybe disoriented, but he's, he's, I guess he's gone in and out of that, um, hallucin- hallucinogenic episode or whatever. Uh, and Ed's like, I'm going to be a minute. So Joel says, yeah, I need to get back to the office. And, uh, we get that turn up the, uh, talking heads music, you know, the music kind of creeps back in insanely good music to end with. Joel is like driving back to his office. He walks from his truck to his office and he like gives a wave to someone driving by very like neighborly community walks into the office and flips the um, closed sign. He flips it to say open. Very simple. We get it. You know, season six, Northern Exposure is back, baby. (laughs) But I think it's beautiful in its simplicity. And it's also just like, I think the music really does a lot of heavy lifting to make this an excellent moment. Yeah. In in a way, you could substitute this as the season six finale or like the season yeah. five finale and season six just doesn't exist <laughs> because it actually, it ends, it, it's open-ended. Yeah. It's self-actualization of what Joel wants, which is to be in a, a small town mm-hmm. where he actually knows people who will get concerned if somebody is, um, uh, tries to be murdered. So I, I think it, it it actually really does work as a finale now that we talked about this. I was going to bring this up at the beginning of the episode, but I think it's better we talk about it now too because watching this, I was also thinking like, what? how is this 
uh, rate as like a season opening. Like, is, is this better in the middle of a season or something? Like, I acknowledge that we could only really have this episode once we're in like season six or in one of the later seasons. Um, and it's even more fitting that it is the last season, even if we don't know it at the time. This episode falls in the last season. Um, but I agree. Yeah. I mean, I, I still don't know. Like, does this work better as a season uh, premiere, mid-season? I really love the idea of it being a season finale, like you're saying. Like, that would be ah, such a great, ah, it's a good ending. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Like I said before, there is a little bit of um, a plug and play nature to it in that, like, you, you really could have slotted this in at any point in the seasons because mm-hmm. we, we understood the characters enough and we could invert them. And the status quo isn't changing really at all. It's a reaffirmation of Joel wanting to stay in Sicily. So I think that's a strength to it. But I also think that like if we actually did slot this in as a season finale, I can see people being angry, Mm -hmm. being like there isn't like a monumental shift. It's it's mostly just a reiteration. It's a bit of a cop out as a season finale i would would admire it a lot for being for going this as oh, a yeah, season yeah, finale yeah. <laughs> but i think fans would be like well they're not even in sicily you know for the whole episode right. so but i, I, I just think it would be it. such a master stroke to be like this is our last episode boom <laughs> you know? I think, yeah i think rather than a season finale it ends as like the series finale then i would be like yeah this is awesome <laughs> this is this is it but yeah i yeah it's hard to say you know it, it's uh i'm glad that it is our I'm at least glad right now because this is such a great way to start a season uh, that I thought would be such a total drag. And maybe I'll be eating these words, but uh, so far is really good. I love this episode. All right, Charles, it's time to bring on our guest for this episode. Previous guest of the podcast, friend of the pod, our good friend Jay. And uh, listener, if you haven't heard Jay previously on the podcast, we went to high school together and... Jay introduced me to the television series Northern Exposure. Actually, I believe, uh, Jay, it was your mom who started watching the show when we were in high school because she got the DVDs from her brother. Is that right? That's right. That's right. Hello. (laughs) How's it going, Jay? (laughs) It's going good. It's good to be back on the podcast, on the podcast. The podcast. Last time you were on, I think it was for uh, Cottage for Uncle Manny with our friend Daniel. And uh, then okay. before, right? Did you you remember that episode? Kind I think of, that's right. Yeah, I think that's right. And then uh, you've also been on some key episodes like uh, Gross Point Four Eight Two Three Zero, Spring Break. Mm, that was a good one. Yeah, I can't remember if there are some other ones, but um, yeah, I mean, so we watched this show back in high school. Bi- both big fans of this show. Uh, season six. Well, it might have been it might have been college by the time we started watching this episode because I remember yeah. we had a couple of false starts before we actually finally finished the whole run. Yeah, uh, we probably saw the first couple of seasons two or three times before we got past that and moved into season four. But I think like one summer we just marathoned it, and knocked the whole thing out. Right now, have you seen? Obviously, you've seen the series. I was telling Charles, I'm pretty sure I've only seen season six once so i've never gone i think back it's the same for me it. i yeah. think it's this, this time that we watched it together was the last time i saw it uh probably 10 plus years ago um yeah so it had been a while do you have any memory of your opinion of season six at the time uh at the time uh, you know actually no i don't have a good memory of my my opinion <laughs> yeah. of season six at the time i don't know if i was aware that rob morrow left the show mm-hmm. in that season uh, so and maybe I was, maybe we had looked up that detail. I don't yeah. really recall. Yeah. I'm trying to remember like when we saw that, were we like, 
he's coming back, right? You know, <laughs> or were we just yeah, like... Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I don't remember. It was it <laughs> a shock to me. I, I yeah. don't remember that. Yeah, but I can't, obviously I, now I know that he left the show, so it's not really a shock. Yeah, I cannot wait for Charles to get there. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, but so this was a pretty interesting episode. I do remember watching this the first time, and I remember us seeing this episode. And yeah, it's a uh, it's pretty awesome. What what did you think about today's episode? I thought it was a, a great departure from the normal life of of Sicily. I don't think it's necessarily a great departure from the style of the show. They do that type of thing uh, kind of frequently where they use dream sequences or not flashbacks, but alternate realities and stuff like that. Uh, in fact, Joel has been to New York before uh, and has had fantasies like this before. Mm-hmm. I thought the setup was really cool, how he accidentally drinks Ed's healing potion or whatever. That was really cool uh, yeah. while Ed's fixing his tape recorder. Um, <laughs> obviously, Ed has developed as a, a character a lot right. into more of a, a movie buff. And a shaman now. Do you remember his like, and a shaman. shaman? That's right. Time, um, That's right. Line? He was yeah. training with uh, Leonard, right. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I have a vague recollection of that. Yeah, it was it was interesting uh, seeing his development, and then Joel at the very beginning he didn't seem like he was too much different than I I remember him being in earlier seasons. I don't know. It, it, he definitely has adjusted to life in Sicily though. Uh, but this episode I think is a, a good chance for the actors to uh, just be different, play the same characters but a different twist or different take on them. Uh, and I think that throughout the whole episode, each or most of the main characters went through some sort of uh, development or realization that this fantasy was not what they wanted. Even though, something I do take issue with, though, is if this was Joel drinking uh, Ed's healing potion and having this alternate fantasy reality, why was there this whole other... uh, Why was there any development of any of the other characters? Why was Joel the... Why was... Oh, I see what you're saying. You know know Mm, what I mean? Why was Joel... He went through a change, but so did... It seemed like every character had their own arc. Yeah. Right. Each character had their own arc, which I understand, you know, for the sake of a, a, an episode, yeah. that's a good thing, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's a variety of plots and things happening, but for the sake of, from Joel's perspective, is is the whole point of the healing potion for Joel to be the one that experiences a change? Uh, yeah. But that, other people experience change too. Right. That's a good point. So I kind of take issue with that. Yeah. It's interesting because this should be the premise of this episode, as you're saying, it's like, it's an episode for Joel to undergo some change, but it seems like everyone in, we talked about this, Charles, earlier in the recording, but it's like everyone in this, uh, in this episode, it feels like they're all trapped in some alternate reality and they're trying to get back. So it's really affecting all of Hmm, the town, all of the show. Interesting. Interesting thought. I hadn't thought that. Hmm. Uh, they, yeah, there's one line where Holling says, "I'm a prisoner." Doesn't he say, "I'm a I feel like a prisoner"? If or somebody something? would just take the blindfold off, right, and the blindfold. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jerry, what did you think about this being the the opening episode for season six? Like, do you think that this would have worked as a season finale better, or do you think that maybe mid season? Definitely not as a season finale because it doesn't feel like there's any closure with any of the characters. Uh, closure mm-hmm. being a big thing for for this show in the past. Uh, Dr. Fleischman has wanted closure with his relationship. To me, it didn't feel like this episode was full of closure. I don't think that, uh, even though the characters came to realizations, I don't think that they fulfilled them uh, in any way yet. So there were still a lot of issues left outstanding. Mid-season, I think it would be a good mid-season episode. Uh, Season opener, though, it feels like it's kind of a, a shock it isn't, like, yeah. It's not a, it's a bold you, you're not thrown, like if somebody was just watching season six when it came on TV for the first time, like, oh, hey, let me check out the show. I'll watch, I'll start watching it this season, which, you know, me 
as who I am now, I don't think I would ever do that. If I was interested in the series, I would go back and watch it from the beginning. I don't think I would ever pick up a show in, in the middle of the show without like going and catching up. Have you um, have you ever done that before? I don't think I have. I mean gone back and watched like a favorite episode no no, no, no like no, no. started a show a brand new show that you've never seen before oh. just started it in the middle of that's what we do to run. all of our guests <laughs> <laughs> this is what you do to all yeah. your guests that is true i mean previously i imagine it would work good for like a like an episodic show like ncis like okay sure yeah every episode has a general generally the same plot they're going to solve a crime or whatever and you can go and pick that up easily and understand what's going on um but a show like Northern Exposure, I don't feel like you can do that because you don't know all the characters' backgrounds. You don't know how they yeah. got to where they were. You don't necessarily know the premise of the show. It's not that you necessarily have to watch every single episode before that to understand what's going on. But I feel like you'd be a lot more lost than if you had seen everything before then. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. I've actually done that before twice for my for my memory. I, I did it to Community. Like I, I, mm. I saw it on Hulu and I saw the thumbnail and I was like, okay, I'll, I'll watch a random episode. And I want to say it was the, uh, the Valentine's day episode. So I watched that one randomly and I was like, okay, I can kind of get what the, what the chemistry of the cast. Uh, I'm going to start from season, season one, episode one. And I think hmm. I did it for how I met your mother. Okay. Like, uh, it's yeah. The thumbnail is doing its trick. <laughs> like that. They, they, well, that's how they get you. I guess. That's how that's they get good you. Marketing. <laughs> I know it's such a good strategy. Good, good thumbnail source or whatever. Yeah. I, I, for both of those shows, I started from ep- season one, episode one and watched all the way through. So <laughs> I, I don't, I can't think of a show that I've picked up in the middle like that. Lee, have you ever done that before? Uh, I've certainly not by my own choice, but like, you know, it's, it's on at someone's house or Brittany's watching something, my partner. And, uh, so I'll just watch it, whatever episode it's on, but that is a good question. I'm trying to think, is there any show that I just dived in, in the middle? And I think there must be some shows that like, think about back in our childhood when things were just airing on TV, we couldn't start from episode one, but that's more episodic things. That's nothing. That's not like as as serial. And I would say that Northern Exposure does have somewhat of an episodic feel, but there are definitely are major plot point episodes. Yeah. And something we talked about, Charles, earlier in the recording is that this episode could only happen, like this episode for today, could only happen in like a fourth or fifth or sixth season, like because everything has been building up. We kind of understand what the characters are, and we're flipping it now. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't think I have a good. A good answer of like, what is a show that I love that I just like, I started in the middle and, but there's got to be some examples. I just, I, I mean, now that you bring up like childhood things or whatever, yeah. I can think of cartoons. I right, would catch an right. episode here and there, or like whatever was on TV at four o'clock after school or, or whatever. Mm-hmm. I would be forced to watch that episode that day. And I didn't have a choice to go back and watch the episodes that came before because we didn't have uh, the tapes or whatever, or I di- wasn't following it from the beginning because I didn't know any better. That would be the only time. But as as an adult watching a series, a drama series, I haven't done it. But yeah, I like how you were saying this is like a bold choice for a season six opening, a season opening. We had, it is. At, at, we had like at the end of our discussion, Charles, we were like, what if this was a season finale? And I agree with you. It doesn't feel like it has uh, all the closure you would want at the end of a season finale. But I like how it feels open-ended and it feels like... I wonder if uh, with this, I can't remember exactly what the season finale is like in in uh, in this season. You know what the series finale is. Yeah, since I'd only seen it once in ten years ago, yeah, I can't <laughs> remember it either. <laughs> uh, I think I kind of I know it's called. 
Oh, it's called Tranquility Base, actually, right? And I think I just remember yeah. the song Our Town playing. There's a song where they sing Our Town or something. Huh. Uh, if this is wrong, I'm going to cut it out. I'm going to check it. <laughs> but I, think I, don't, I don't remember. Yeah, that's really the only thing I kind of remember. But yeah, I'm excited to dive into here with Charles when we keep going. Uh, what else should we mention about this episode? One thing I thought about this episode, Jay, I want to see if you had this read or if you like this idea, was um, that this episode feels very meta when, I mean, it is about the characters kind of recognizing that they're out of place and they need to realign to their core, to their core characteristics. Right. They sort of, their plot line, their, their, their subplot lines gravitate themselves back to their character back to normal. in Sicily, which is back to normal. Right. And something I thought about, and maybe I'm reading too far into this, but I kind of like the read. It's like the writers are embarking now on this sixth season, which may be the last. I don't know if they, at the time, I don't know if they knew already that this was going to be the last season, but they're saying to themselves with this idea for a, for an episode that like, we need to get back to the roots of Northern exposure. What we, what makes Northern exposure, Northern exposure, like what makes it itself mm -hmm. and like trying to realize what that is. I don't know. Yeah. I felt like there's a lot of interesting ways to read uh, the meta context of the episode. But I think overall, yeah, just the idea of these characters returning to, to themselves. Returning to themselves. Yeah. Well, I think Maurice's plot line was probably the, the more minor one, but he definitely displays the same capitalistic uh, seize the moment uh, tendencies that he does in his regular Sicily life. And mm -hmm. he gravitates toward that. But I think by the end, he gravitates toward a, a um, I don't know, a different understanding. I don't know what that might be, but he, he I don't think he's truly changed like some of the other characters. And same thing with Ed. Ed's plot line didn't seem like he did much changing. I mean, maybe he turns from a shrewd businessman into an understanding character uh, simply because he picks up a ferret. To me, that seems kind of loose. Uh, those are the two minor ones. He's related. We're, we're all animals, man. We're all scared little ferrets. That's, <laughs> that was... we, uh, Jay, would you have... Okay, so put yourself into Joel Fleischman's uh, yeah. shoes right there. If someone had pulled a gun on you, like at a party, would you would you still let them stay after? I after? mean, if they were still there with the gun, yes. If they had relinquished the gun, then I'd probably kick them out uh, or call the police or something. <laughs> but I mean, it seemed like they, everybody just let Maurice keep his gun, um, and so I would I probably would have just said, you know, okay, if he wants to have a drink, that that's on him as long as he has a gun. If I don't have a gun or if somebody else at the party doesn't have a gun and try to wrest control of the situation, then, you know, I just think I'd let him be as long as he doesn't try to do anything violent from then. But I, I definitely would be calling the police later probably. Did you have a favorite character in this episode or favorite, favorite, like, favorite moment or storyline? I think one of my favorite storylines in this episode, I think my favorite storyline in this episode was the, the Chris storyline. Cool. Uh, how yeah. he doesn't have his voice. He doesn't have the words that he usually has, and he is relying on his brother. And, you know, maybe this is Chris's nightmare. Um, Chris, who normally has something to say about everything and some sort of opinion about everything, all of a sudden can't find the right words to say, uh, to describe even the simplest concept and anonymity and humanity and, and all of that. Uh, and I thought that it was also a throwback. If you recall, there's an episode mm -hmm. way back when Chris's voice is stolen, quote, stolen, unquote. Right. 
by a beautiful woman who passes through town and steals his voice. And the only way to get his voice back is to sleep with the most beautiful woman in the town or to sleep with that woman ideally. But mm-hmm. uh, And apparently this was such a universally known thing that not only did the Native Americans know it, but Maurice, the most opposite of a Native American that you can have in, in Sicily, uh, probably, <laughs> also agreed that the, the only way for Chris to get his voice back was to sleep with the most beautiful woman in town. And who uh, was which, that? Yeah. And that was Maggie by the end of the episode. That was Maggie. Yeah. Uh, and, and they don't ever describe if, if Chris actually slept with Maggie or not in that episode. I don't even remember what the name of that episode was. It's called The Big Kiss. And actually- The Big Kiss. She did just we, did up, I do that one? Uh, no, no, no. That was, uh, so was season two, episode two, I want to say. And I think Lizzie did that episode. Okay. But okay. that's the one with like one who waits. Do you remember? Yes. Yeah. Um, but that's and a great episode. Indian guide. I, I was going to say, I think uh, Maggie just like kisses Chris. And it works. Yeah, that's probably all that happened. Yeah, it's called the big. Uh, yeah. You know, Jay's like, like I don't know. Doors we can't whole, say for the sure. Town was, <laughs> <laughs> the whole town was waiting outdoors, and Chris just walks outside, sits down on the porch, and says, "Wow!" He gets his voice back. Well, by the end of this episode mm-hmm. that we're currently talking about, he gets his voice back right. again, mm-hmm. and Similar. it's because Maggie talks him down off the ledge. Oh, I didn't even think so. About I thought that. that that was an interesting similarity yeah. in the plot line. Maggie helps give him his voice back. Now, granted, I think it was humorous that as he was standing on the ledge trying to talk, Maggie kept cutting him off and talking over him. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too. It's like she's trying to save him, but in the same way, she's like cutting him off. I don't know if that mm-hmm. was intentional, but that's just that's what happened when they, you know, they took the script and filmed it, and that's what happened. It just seems like that's one way you can read it. I don't know if that was intentional. Uh, maybe um. <laughs> but but by the time she gets him down off the ledge he's talking again and he has opinions and things to say yeah he's quoting some poems and bernard is syncing up with them and it's right yeah it's all coming back they're back to their normal mm-hmm. and that hmm, okay i can't i can't go there charles hasn't seen the rest yet <laughs> oh, snap. oh snap i don't even want to i don't yeah. even want to call it out for what i know it to be yeah um, interesting if charles would just not listen for a moment i could say it uh, Charles, take your yeah, take your headphones off. off. You can tell okay. me. I'm going to cut this out of the podcast. I I almost wonder if Charles had had that spoiled for him, but he may. I think I think he may have already had that spoiled for him, but you might have forgotten. So I won't. We won't talk about it. But okay, <laughs> just, we won't talk about it. Either. Um. Anyway, so okay, the most simple thing, the simplest thing that I notice about this episode. What's the name of the episode? Uh, dinner at seven thirty. Dinner at 7.30. And what time was dinner in the episode? <laughs> was it like 7 or something? It was at 5 o'clock. What the hell? 5 o'clock. First of all, so who has a dinner a re- party that, at 5 o'clock? Is that a reference to something? I Googled it and I like- No, have- I don't think it's a reference to anything. I think it's just- I, I, I don't know personally if it's a reference to anything. Yeah. I whenever you think dinner, like I always think dinner at Andre's. Like that's what you yeah, always, your mind always. Or my goes, dinner with my Andre. dinner my with, dinner with Andre. Andre. Yeah, your mind yeah. always goes there. But like dinner at seven thirty. Well, my whole point in bringing this up was the discrepancy in the time. Yeah, the the time. title oh, of the yeah. episode is at seven thirty, yeah. but they actually start the dinner party at five. Yeah, did something important happen at seven thirty? I I just like took it for granted. I wasn't even thinking about that. Wow. I mean, the only other time that they referenced a time in the show is Ruth Ann shows up and she shows up at six and says, oh, was the party at six or was it supposed to be at five? And he said it was supposed to be at five. What if the party's at five and then dinner's served at, but they never ever served dinner, do they? Because they just uh, serve No, it's just a buffet at eight, by the way. Yeah, because he (laughs) told that right another time. He tells Maggie that the buffet is at eight in the episode. So, you know, the the whole series of of the title of the episode is, is mixed up from what they show in the episode. Anyway, 
That was a very minor thing. No, that's that's important, I think. Why would they title it Dinner at 7.30? I'm glad you caught that because it just like whenever. I mean, my, it could just be, you know, it. it slipped the writer's minds. Maybe they weren't thinking about, you know, the name of the episode versus what happens in the episode. And, but maybe, maybe there's a true they meaning to it that I hadn't thought dinner of. Dinner at 7.30 sounds cooler than dinner at 8 or whatever, but. Yeah, I don't that, know. It could be that. No, it I don't know. I, I swear, I feel like there's a meeting, but we're never. We won't find it tonight. Uh, okay. Yeah, not tonight. <laughs> um, what else happens? Well, Shelley and Hauling uh, sort of rekindle. Well, like we said before, right. they gravitate mm-hmm. back to their natural characters. Uh, Hauling realizes that he needs Shelley to overcome fear in his life, um, yeah. which in in this scenario manifests as agoraphobia. Which is completely contrary to what we know about Holling. He's an outdoorsman. He he owns. Uh, he's an outdoorsman. He loves to go hunting. He likes photography and all that. Um, and Shelley realizes that she just wants to run a restaurant. Well, that's yeah. what she does in Sicily. <laughs> and she and Joel realize they weren't meant for each other. That I don't think that that is a plot point that was ever used in a previous episode. Was any sort of attraction between Joel and Shelley? I don't think that was ever pursued yeah. ever. The writers never shipped them except mm-hmm. for this episode. I think. What do you what do you think of Maggie's accent? Maggie's accent was weird. I think some of the other characters tried to put on some some accents a, too. Shelly has a little bit of a, bit of a New York type of accent, not not a very good one, I don't think. I can't speak from experience. I don't. I have no idea how to do that. But um, but I think they made an attempt. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was interesting that Maggie was wearing an a, a Texas A and M sweater. Right. So you know that the actress she's like from Texas. Is she? Yeah. And I tried to search whenever we were talking, because I was like, did you know, Charles, that that is her alma mater? And then I was like, wait, let me actually make sure. Is it really? I don't know. I can't confirm nor deny. I couldn't confirm it, but it could <laughs> okay. be. It's possible because she's from Texas. I don't know. Well, maybe that's just a throwback to her roots, yeah. to her accent. I don't know. Jay, what did you think about the scene between Joel and Maggie? I, I like. I, I remember distinctly really enjoying that scene it's the one where they where they're picking up toys yeah Mm -hmm. they step into joel's um, i think it's both children and i'm not i think it's like a playroom playroom yeah it's not quite a bedroom what'd you think about it the number one thing that i thought was really interesting about it was the trappings of the room that like so the episode is set in new york like famously it's trying to get you into that new york lifestyle but when they step into that room it almost feels like a suburbia from any old town across america let's say ohio let's say michigan let's say anywhere just somewhere in the middle and you step into that uh childhood room right there and it almost transports them back into their own special place in a universe that only exists between joel and maggie and no one else i thought that Mm. was a really really great moment that's probably i mean we've recorded three three four episodes already lee of season six yeah Yeah, so so spoiler alert to listener we're banking these episodes and we got Jay for this recording, but we've been watching other episodes. So we've seen a few so far in season so six. So there, I haven't watched the, the other episodes right. of season six in 10 years. So y'all, y'all are a little <laughs> bit ahead of me in that time. <laughs> um, I never, I never thought about it, Charles. I never thought about how it was a, uh, you know, their own little universe, but I guess it kind of is. It's, it's a room where Joel eventually ends up feeling free. You know, he's jumping on a trampoline, which is, you know, almost symbolic of flight kind of. Mm-hmm. And Maggie has this confession to him that, Maybe she wants to be doing something else. Maybe she wants to be doing something else in Sicily too. I don't know. Yeah, we'll see if that manifests later on. I like what you said about the trampoline because we talked about that. A lot of different meanings of what it could mean. I don't know if we specifically said that. So that's a another good read. I like it. I thought about it as 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 flight and freedom right. for Joel. That was his moment of release away from the party, away from his guests, away from New York, 
And if you throw in Charles's analysis, then it's his freedom and flight into his own his own world. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting that when he jumps on the trampoline, he stays in place, though. Like, he doesn't move. Right. He's not moving left, right, forward, back, but he's moving up and, up down. and down. And he has that, yeah. There's that moment of hang time when you're at the, the, the arc of your bounce, and that's that moment of freedom. Mm, I like that. That's what I was thinking of. Charles, were you going to say something about... Uh comparing this episode to other episodes you've seen in the season or oh yeah i was just gonna say like that is still the standout moment for me oh yeah amongst all the Your episodes favorite. that we've mm-hmm. seen that moment is still the one that sticks out to me for season six of northern exposure yeah like i said jay i remember when we watched this episode i remember seeing it all that what 10 years ago and i was like mm-hmm. that's kind of a cool quirky little episode i, I thought it was interesting Rewatching it now i'm like i'm really i really think it is a great episode of tv well it's it's, it's the departures from the the yeah. norm of northern exposure i always thought that made it the uh, a very interesting show to begin with is yeah they have a bunch of episodes that focus on sicily and some plot lines through there and some let's say more basic plot lines of what they could do but then every now and then they have a breakout episode where they do something completely different where it's a dream sequence or it's uh everybody in town's acting differently that have y'all watched the episode where all the women have really high libido? Has that happened yet? Is it that was kind of an off the wall episode? Is it the one where everyone's attracted to Chris or something? No, else? not that one. There's another one where every every single woman in the town has a super high libido and they're wearing their husbands down, and they all end up going to see the doctor. Maybe that's season six. Spoiler alert, oh, Charles. Oh, I don't, I don't know. know if we have. It sounds like it could have been one. Apply. I definitely but, remember this. It was not okay. the Chris episode. It's it's in there somewhere. Okay. Um, we might, damn, might if I spoil it for you, I'm sorry, mm, Charles. No, no, no that's okay. Uh, yeah. But it's those departures from like an expected plot line where they do something that's wild for a plot line or com- in a completely different setting. I think that makes the show more interesting. Why? Well, it's always the ones, in my opinion, that are uh, not in Sicily that always happen to be the best ones, in my opinion. And coincidentally, we had you on for Gross the trip Point. trip to S- Seattle or Gross oh, Point. Gross Point, right. Oh, I, also, I also did the one where they went to – where uh, Joel and Maggie went to uh, Anchorage. <laughs> Anchorage, right. yeah. Yeah, they, they left Sicily for the, the conference or the convention That's, or whatever it, happened it was. It happened in Juno. I forgot yes, you were on that it episode. it happened in Juno. It's a good yeah, one. Yeah, we, so we I, always I'm, get to on those. I'm on all the Juno. ones where they're not in Sicily, Alaska. <laughs> well, like, <laughs> I, This is a good... I don't think we even planned that for this, but it, wow. it makes so much it sense. It all works out. There's like, some meta-analysis for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I still think... Uh, I mean, I've told this to the pod before, but like, Gross Point is, in my opinion, the best Northern Exposure episode, or at least my favorite huh. episode right there. And I still think about it from time to time. And I'm like, you know, if I had to rank of all the television shows... What makes it your favorite one? I think there were a lot of subtle things. Number one, the performance of the characters, especially the guest stars, like the the yeah. guy who was going to be the boyfriend uh, of Maggie. Oh, yeah, and he returns later in mm-hmm. another episode. And then yeah. like her, brother, her brother, Jeffy. All yeah, right, Jeffy. and Mama... Uh, yeah, the grandma, the mom, and then Spike from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Yeah, really? Like he priest. was in that episode? He's like the priest in that. Yeah. Oh, man. And I don't I, remember that. Wow. Yeah. Huh. It's his, James Marsters, I think is his. That sounds right. But it was his first, um, his first acting for TV. Hmm. His first role okay. on TV. Pretty cool. Sorry. Were you uh, no, no, no. Like, yeah, I was just going to say, like, they all nailed it out of the park, but that's like a small thing. Like, the major thing is that, like, when you watch Northern Exposure, you're so used to them being in Sicily and how this town functions. But when you take them out of it, and it, especially if it's just Joel and Maggie, it becomes a character study amongst those two characters. And now you're taking them both into a new environment. It's no longer Joel 
trying to accept this new place. It's both of them together. And you're seeing mm-hmm. how they're interacting and how they can survive in this new environment and they bounce off of each other. But the whole weight of that is now being placed on characters rather than settings. Because ordinarily, like, the town of Sicily is usually a character of itself. Right. But now, mm-hmm. they're such good chemistry between them and strong characters that they can thrive on their own in a different location. And now that we got the season four, we've had so many episodes that have built their relationship amongst each other. When we bring them to Maggie's hometown of this, uh, this is the second time I'm bringing it up, but like of this suburbia town that feels like it can be anywhere in America. So therefore it reflects on everyone who's watching the television show that it feels like it could have been you. When you see that, I think that there's a resonance within you. And I think that's what I got out of gross point was that like, I think that almost everybody can really identify in Maggie's position of being like, all right, I feel like I'm in a nut house. You're like, <laughs> but you can't escape it because it's your, it's, it's people that you love and that yeah, are a part of you. Yeah. Good episode. Yeah. I think you were even telling me, Charles, that you like referenced that episode when talking about to someone else, like not about Northern Exposure, but you were like, this is like a good, like you use it as an example. Yeah. For something. Yeah. Somebody was like asking, I was like, what are your favorite television shows? Like throughout all of television. Yeah. And I was like, uh, Northern Exposure, Gross Point, 90210. And that's like, that's got to, that's like <laughs> such a deep cut. Like if you like, yeah. yeah if you know that. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy. I'm just thinking about like when we started this podcast back at season one, it's like, all right, Charles. Hope you like the show and like <laughs> glad to know like he, at least he likes you know it's grown on him. That's good to know. Him, yeah. That's the that's good feedback, Charles. <laughs> that's you know, popularity's taken off. Let's go. Yeah. I was actually talking to uh, a coworker the other day where she was talking about I would I had brought up that I was watching the, this episode to mm-hmm. record what we're doing at this moment. Uh, and I I asked her if she'd ever seen the show. And she's she's older than me, so she's been alive long enough to have been aware of that show. So right. she, she knows Northern Exposure, but she is not aware of the the plot or anything about it. She doesn't know anything about it. She's never seen an episode. Mm-hmm. And we got to talking about how it's not available anywhere. And to my knowledge, it still isn't available except on physical media. That's uh, correct. Unless you guys know different. Yeah, you basically just need like your local library to have the DVDs of Northern Exposure, <laughs> or like they or a friend they do make Blu-rays now. Uh, it's ah. like UK Australian release, and we have the Blu-rays. Um, so we've been watching, which is really nice actually to see in 1080. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of a because I'm watching it in yeah, whatever that's on, on the, the DVD SD yeah, um, quality. But yeah, it really is. It really is such a death sentence to an amazing piece of media that right. you can't watch. You know? I mean, I was, I was, when I picked up the DVD case, the back of it says 39 nominations for yeah. uh, primetime Emmys. And I'm like, Insane. how, how does a show like that escape it's just being lost. brought into Netflix or Amazon prime video or, or whatever, you know, some, yeah. some way to watch it in the modern technology way of, of streaming, you know, how does it get lost like that? A show of this caliber. There have been a lot of revival TV shows and like you would think at some point like they're going to run out of shows to revive and like or to bring back like on streaming. It's like, oh, you remember this old show? So like eventually they'll have to like, they're not going to have any other choice but to put Northern Exposure on streaming somewhere. (laughs) Unless they come up with something new. Yeah, I guess so. Finally, (laughs) yeah, maybe they'll, they'll do that. I guess one of the bigger plot points was Joel realizing that he wants to be a doctor in a hick town. Uh, yeah. That's, those are his words. So he's offered the partnership, and that's one of the key. So I guess something we didn't mention right. before is when Joel is transported into this alternate reality, he's bewildered and confused at first. 
But then he and sinks into his lifestyle. And he, he immediately sinks into it. He's, Charles he's brought with this it. up. Yeah. He knows what happens. They just kind of die right into it. They yeah. only give the audience a few moments to figure out what's happening. And those are the few moments that Joel is confused. And then boom, Joel is part of he becomes the that, scene yeah. already. He becomes In the alternate world. character. And they they just they don't address it after that. He just gets <laughs> transported back to Sicily at the end, and and that's it. Um, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. But one of his his major storyline was: is he going to get the partnership at his uh, internal medicine clinic that's run by Ruth Ann? Apparently, Doctor uh, Miller. Yeah. <laughs> right, Doctor Miller. Uh, so he's he ends up getting offered the partnership, and he realizes at the toward the end of the episode that that's not what he wants. He's accepted who he is, accepted what he's learned about himself, and that is he he doesn't mind being a doctor in a small town, and that's grown on him, which is kind of the theme that runs throughout the show is he's getting more and more comfortable with being a Sicilian. Now, whether that sticks around for the rest of the season, you'll have right. to see. But <laughs> you still have how many episodes left, 20 or something? Yeah. But, but yeah, it ends with him going back to – his office and like right the very end he comes back to Sicily he comes back to the the office and he's excited and happy or maybe not maybe those aren't the right words he's at least content that this is satisfying and fulfilling for him especially when somebody honks and waves and says hey doc to him and he yeah. waves back or whatever you know and now he's he's open for business it reminds me of like I don't know if you remember this but I think it's in the first season maybe in the second season. At some point they change it, but the when it cuts to the end credits of Northern Exposure, like at the end of at the end of an episode, it's a still shot of Joel and Marilyn walking to the office. Do you yeah, remember yeah. that? That I is do. like that is Do they still do that? They don't do it after the I know they do it in the first season. At some point they stop doing that. Uh, and they just do like a still of the moose in front of uh mm-hmm. Rosalind's cafe. But that original freeze frame of Joel and Marilyn walking back to his office is like... That's from like the first or second episode, right? The first episode is when Joel um, has a breakdown outside of the office. He's like being in his truck. truck. Yeah, I remember that. Marilyn comes to get him. He's like, they're still waiting. And he resigns and he's like, all right, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to be a doctor here. And so he walks. That's like a key moment, I think. And so this when reminds he accepts me... his fate. Yeah, this this moment here at the end, at the end of this episode... Um, reminds me of that kind of moment. And it's like, that's kind of him accepting who he is right now. And he wants to be, hey doc, he wants to be answering that and right. going to but the But in office. this moment, he realizes that it's it's enough for him. It's fulfilling, it's satisfying. Whereas in the in this first season, episode one, <laughs> yeah. he's like, no, I, I, he's begrudgingly doing it, even though you know he finally realizes he has to do it. Right, right. I guess the very last thing we could talk about is uh, guest stars. And maybe not stars, but like minor characters and okay. guests on the show. I remember uh, Walt ending up yeah. not becoming a major character, but he had he had a mm-hmm. few good moments. And I think he probably even had a couple of subplots in some of the episodes, but I don't really remember what they are. I remember he was a good character, though, an interesting character. And so I, I did a little scoping out of you know who he was, because there's this one scene where, where Hauling leaves right with Shelly to go to the park. And there's nobody left to play the piano. Well, Walt's playing the piano. But it turns out Walt, the, char- the, the actor, can actually play the piano. He's actually a jazz pianist. Dude, hold on. All hold right. on. Hold on. Wait here. One second. Wait. Uh, somebody there's, there's something I want to show. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Oh, there's somebody he wants to show. Mul- What's the guy's name? Moultrie Patton? Yeah, Moultrie Patton. You know, that's a striking name in itself. Moultrie Patton. Oh, you got the album. Yeah. Check that out. Yeah, <laughs> so like- I was reading about that. He re-released this album. 
in like 97 of his favorite whatchamacallits. Lee just uh, showed me uh, the album in on video chat of uh, he has multi-patents uh, jazz pianist yeah. album. What's it called? Is it? Is, does it have a name? It's called Give Away a Smile. And it's actually, that's the first song, uh, original song he does. It's awesome. Huh. Uh, he's like a pretty, you know, he's got some fingers on him. You know, he's a pretty good jazz pianist. And uh, yeah. a lot of it is like kind of spoken word over singing. I mean, he kind of sings a little, but then he will do breaks in the middle of a song where he just like stops playing and starts reciting spoken word. It's pretty cool. Huh. I'm going to share it with you too, Jay. It's pretty I would, Yes, I definitely would like to, to listen to that. <laughs> that sounds really cool. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. He was actually playing the piano in the scene, um, and I guess Ruth Ann was actually playing with him. Now here, here is something that I always bring up anytime <laughs> we talk about Motrypad. Now, uh, do you have your, your internet browser open, Jay? Are you, are you by the computer? Uh, I, I can open it. What's, all right, all right. Uh, what's going on? Look up Motrypad's Wikipedia page. Well, I did that earlier today. All right. Did you see the profile picture that they use for him? Um, it's his gravestone. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's his gravestone. Why? That's, Why would you well, do it's his gravestone at Arlington National Cemetery. I mean, the guy yeah. was in yeah. World War II. He He's was a, a tank commander. I hear I am reading off his Wikipedia page. <laughs> He's a veteran. He lived to be almost ninety years old. Um, and there's, I'm sure there's plenty of source material to have actual pictures of the guy. Uh, not the least of which is Northern Exposure. Yeah. But somebody chose to put. A picture of his gravestone at Arlington. Why? As his Wikipedia profile, not profile. I guess it's his profile, his picture. Yeah. So I don't know, man. I I think we should start a movement to replace that with a an with, actual picture. Yeah. There's a great if you just Google image search him. There's like a great one of him. He looks pretty dashing, like posing with a like a black piano. It looks pretty good. Could do that. That's something. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. No, I wanted to mention that uh, I was on the Facebook group Club NX and someone, I believe it was his daughter, was had a bunch of these CDs left over. Like they were maybe just cleaning out a room or something and they found all these CDs. And she had listed them on like eBay, but she also wanted to like list them in the Facebook group. And uh, yeah. Okay, so obscure guest character moment yes, okay. for me was uh, the bartender. The caterer guy. Who is now, that guy? He looked familiar. The actor's name is something Morrissey, I think. He's in a few other episodes of Northern Exposure. Yes, he season. is in a few other episodes of Northern Exposure. And they, they I don't know what he does in these other episodes, yeah. but he's apparently a big enough character to sneak his way into as a background character of uh, a, a New York scene or whatever. Right. But I was uh, when I was looking him up, I discovered that I also remember him from The West Wing. Um, oh. If you recall the episode where Donna is like, I want to take on more, more responsibility. And so Josh sends her to North Dakota. Oh, Do you remember yeah. this? Yeah, is it the uh, the person that tells Sam to get off the mat? Yes, it's the person that tells <laughs> Sam to get up off the mat because Sam is having a I don't remember something negative happened to Sam, but yeah, it's the person that Donna talks to. He's the chairman of whatever committee something or other in North They're, Dakota. Yeah, that's listening to the people plead their case to just drop the word North from North Dakota. Uh, <laughs> that's the, the the plot point of that episode. But he's he that's the guy. That's the guy. Wow. And apparently oh, he only wow. ever had like minor roles in different TV shows. I was looking up his IMDb page. But uh, I knew I recognized him from somewhere when I saw him. And maybe I recognized him from the West Wing. And maybe I have a vague recollection of him from some other episodes in Northern Exposure. But yeah. mm, chances are just slim of that. Yeah. Because <laughs> we can hardly remember. Yeah. Good catch. Seems like there's a lot of overlap on the... Um... West Wing and Northern Exposure. We got Alan Arkin right there. Yeah. 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 Is Eve, is she in she West is? Wing? Yeah, she man. is. She's in the West Wing. She but is. I love her character. DEA? <laughs> Not DEA. NEA. 
the National Endowment of the Arts? Yes. Yes, National right. Endowment of the Arts. He wants to take money away from the NEA. And I, <laughs> right. We, I've had this discussion multiple times with Lee because I think that her character is wonderful both in the show, Eve, and also in the West Wing. I think that yeah. her character is like, oh, absolutely. She it out of the she's, park. she's a great actress. She plays it well, and the character's written well for her. She's one of the Emmy winners, too, of, of this yeah. series of Northern Exposure. She won an Emmy. The very last thing, I, I think it's the very last thing. Maybe I'll just let more things pop into my head. Yeah. <laughs> well, one thing I remember from this, this episode is the first scene where it's only Shelly and Holling together, where Shelly has the migraine and she's laying on the bed and Holling walks in with a glass of water. Mm-hmm. They're talking, whatever, and they agree to go out into the park. Holling is convinced to go out and overcome his agoraphobia because Shelly's with him. As they're walking out the door, you hear this music and you hear a bass line wrapping up a song, and it's just exactly the same thing that you would hear in the brick. Mm. Oh, wow. The exact same style of music, and it doesn't fit the party at all. I, I, I couldn't see I that party that. having that music. But I noticed this bass line, you know, wrapping up a song at the very end as the door closes shut behind Shelly and Holling walking out. And to me, that's just a throwback to the brick. It felt like the brick. It just reminded you of them leaving, like, you know, those when people enter or exit the brick. That's interesting. Right. Like, if there's ever, <laughs> if from what I remember, if there was a scene at the brick, it usually ended or began with the ending of a song. Or there, right. were, there was at least some transition between from one song, song A to song B, right. while there was a scene going on at the brick. And the song would always end that same way. And maybe it was the same song. I don't know. Uh, I don't nice. even know if you could identify the song. But the bass line, I definitely I have a distinct memory of that bass line wrapping up a song. Oh, nice. So you think this is like maybe some music that they used previously, potentially? Maybe. Yeah. David Schwartz original. Maybe it's just to, to get your mindset back to, hey, here's Shelly and Holly again. Running the brick. Yeah. Well, awesome, Jay. I'm glad uh, that you took the time to go back and watch this episode. I'm glad uh, we're revisiting this moment from over 10 years ago watching yeah. this season. Uh, it was good. It was refreshing. I, I enjoyed my time watching, rewatching this episode. And I mean, we've, Char- Charles, we've been on a pretty long hiatus in between the end of season five and now. And, you know, I just kept thinking, it's like, okay, what is season six going to be like? Is this just like, how quickly is this going to drop off? And I'm really excited with this episode. Like, I love where we're going so far with season six. Uh, everything tells me it's not going to last long. Like, it'll eventually fall off. But I, I'm loving this moment now. Uh, so, Jay, yeah, thanks again for joining us. Uh, hopefully this won't be the last time. We're in the last season, but we'd love to get you back Yeah, man, again. thanks for having me. Yeah, of course, of course, anytime. And, um yeah, I don't know. I guess, uh, Charles, normally I have, I ask you to, uh, predict what you think will happen in the next episode, but as we've revealed it, we've already been watching a lot of episodes. So I'll just say that the title of the next episode that we'll be covering next week is Eye of the Beholder. Actually, Jay, do you, <laughs> could you guess what happens in, a, in this episode? I mean, you've um, seen it, but you won't remember it probably. Eye of the Beholder. Eye of the Beholder is going to be, I, I honestly do not remember, but it's going to be something about a romantic relationship between two of the characters in the mm, show. There is one. There is a romantic relationship. We won't something say about, well, much. something about beauty, somebody being yeah, very self-conscious maybe. I honestly don't remember the plot at all. I, I think you could tie the beauty in with uh, someone's attraction to another person like a little romance brewing maybe but we won't go too far into that we'll talk about that next week uh, all right jay thanks once again we'll get you on again soon and uh charles i'll see you next week all right i'll see you next week 
Northern Overexposure podcast was edited by me. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to B-Ball Y'all for the podcast artwork. And thank you to Jay for being our guest. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at northernoveraxposurepodcast at gmail.com, at northernoverpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northernoveraxposurepodcast. And of course, thank you for listening.